Thanks for tuning in, guys. You're listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg Driver. I'm joined by Rahul Johnny and Leon Everett. Let's go. And welcome to episode 92 of Ace Comicals, which is also the third and final episode in our Watchmen series. Uh, In today's episode, we will be delving into the most recent media to bear the Watchmen title. And we aim to explore the Watchmen 2019 TV series. Now, you probably point out that I have skipped something and that would be Doomsday Clock, but we're skipping it on purpose because... um, While you may realize we aren't discussing Doomsday Clock, that's because I feel it has less to do with Watchmen and more to do with the main DC universe. It's like Watchmen colliding with the main DC universe and it's less of a a Watchmen thing on its own. And, you know, I had initial enthusiasm for the series. It was fun to read, but it wasn't all that special. And I like to look at it as a separate entity from the rest of the Watchmen story and universe because upon finishing this TV show... um, I am of the opinion that all you need is the original 12 issues and then this. But anyway, uh, enough with that. Um, I am joined by, as usual, uh, my co-host, Leon. Hey, hey. And Rahul. Hey, everybody. And uh, special guest, Anthony Askew, who has been the guest for all the Watchmen episodes. One honor. Hello. Yes. Floating there in the corner, bright blue. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving out other details, are we? (laughs) Well, yeah, you know. Uh, (laughs) I'm keeping my eyes above the waist. Anyway. No need. (laughs) Which one is floating is just the right height. (laughs) (laughs) Where do we start with this? So I guess we're going to start at the end, aren't we? And uh, the first thing I'm going to ask you guys is how did you find this TV show in relation to you know, other Watchmen media that you've watched. So like general first impressions. And we will start with the guest. Ask you, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure thing. Um, <clears throat> I went into this a little anxious, as I think a lot of people in their right minds would be. Even with those attached, I was thinking like, mm, I don't think I want this. And I was, as I was watching it, I was, I was torn in multiple times. There was times I was thinking, I want less Watchmen in this. And more of like the other aspects of the story. And then I would flip flop and be like, "No, I want more of that Watchmen stuff that was in the last episode, and, and vice versa." So I was I was torn throughout. But overall, it's a it's a really good experience. Really good experience. Yeah, um, I was skeptical at first because when I first heard about this that this was coming out, I was like, mm, "Do we really need more? I mean, like, can can they do anything?" can they do anything with Watchmen that would, you know, keep it relevant or, or bring it into, I don't know. I wasn't excited for it when it first got announced. I was, I was like a little worried because, you know, coming off the back of things like the before Watchmen comics, <laughs> thinking, Ooh, trying to continue on the Watchmen series. Um, and, you know, thinking doomsday clocks. Okay but it's only okay. Do I want more things that are only okay 
or do I just, you know, do do we need more things that are only okay? But I think like it's overstating the obvious when we say that this show was way fucking more than okay. Uh, <laughs> and uh, probably some of the best television I've watched in the past year, at least. Um, and I actually, I actually feel like they've done a really, really, really good job of keeping the kind of core Watchman's soul, if you like, intact while mm. extending it and and knitting it in in a really nice way and doing creating something new and at the same time weaving it so seamlessly into what was before that it feels so natural and it feels like it just should be, doesn't it? And yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, Ray, what did you think? Yeah, I have to agree. I uh, I was cautiously optimistic about this show. I was lucky enough not to have been corrupted by the uh, the disappointing comics that came before it. And the only thing that I had pre- uh, uh, prior to this was the movie, which, you know, I, I've gone on record as saying, like, I quite like the film. Um, it has, you know, it takes a lot of missteps, but aesthetically it's really pleasing and all of that stuff. You can go and listen to that recording if you want my opinion on on the movie. But following that, I was ready for something more something that did something different that wasn't just taking the characters and putting them in the same adventure but more situations of the same thing and i the reason i was up to it was going to be um made the, the showrunner was going to be damon lindelof and i've gone on record as saying that the leftovers which is a previous damon lindelof uh, production is my favorite tv show ever and i was thinking if it could reach that same level of like gravitas and uh, on we and like um i don't know like the leftovers is a very hopefully depressing show and that really works for me so i was thinking if the if they could do that but with the watchman i don't know the watchman legacy the watchman uh property then that would satisfy me so yeah i and i was i wasn't disappointed i think it really delivers on a lot of the things that i was hoping for and more like i was I was hoping for something deep, something exploratory, and I think it delivered that in spades and delivered something that I wasn't expecting from a TV show in 2019. Um, and we can also talk about how different this show can feel having watched it just six months later, you know, but we'll we'll get there eventually. Um, Leon, how about you? Yeah, in a very similar way to all of you, um, Going in, I was a bit apprehensive, but like way before, because uh, as of you, uh, I'm a big fan of um, The Leftovers and I'm a fan of Damon Lindelof's work in general, really. But um, I've, I found that the work that he did on The Leftovers, I'd always refer to it to people as a recommendation. It's like adult lost in a way, because it's dealing with a lot of like similar themes and either similar constructions. But um, it, it's it's not about like the mystery and instead it's about like the characters and what's going on. And hearing that um, as he was working on the third season, I think it was, I remember hearing that HBO had him tapped to do a Watchmen TV series. And I was just so disappointed. I was like, after, after season two of the leftovers, cause season three hadn't finished yet. Uh, like for me, that's one, that's one of the best seasons of TV I've watched like maybe ever. And for him to be after all of this, he's going to go and do a Watchmen adaptation. It just felt so needless. 
Like I've said this before on on the on the cast that we did, not even the Watchmen cast, the cast that we did around the time that the TV show's first episode came out. Mm. Um, and yeah, I was just I was just worried and thinking like this is not a good good idea at all. Uh, like I want the project to die so you can do something original. And then obviously we had Comic Con and we got that first sort of teaser trailer, and that's what I was like, oh what this isn't a uh, another adaptation. This is a sequel. What? What the hell does this mean? And uh, and uh, and from that point, I didn't really uh, know much. But I was going to watch it, whatever the case, because it was my boy Lindelof. So I was like, I'm going to watch whatever he does next. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after just watching that, that even the first few minutes of the first episode, I was just like, yeah, I'm bought in. This is doing something way different and better than I could have even imagined. And obviously, got a lot to say about the particulars, but. Uh, my apprehension was just like deleted really and by the time that we got to the end um, I felt that this was definitely for me last year was my favorite drama of of the year Um, but on top of that I think it's just um, it it uses the form in a way that I really enjoy which is where you have a a, um, something set in a genre whether it be sci-fi superheroes uh, fantasy whatever uh, and then you ground it in uh, like real world stuff that, um, and then you blur those lines. And obviously, Watchmen the comic book was genius at doing that. And I feel that Watchmen the TV show is a great continuation of that uh, like lineage. Um, and where I was worrying in some degrees that we would get sort of a carbon copy or like a TV version mm-hmm. of the movie. Uh, just with a squid at the end instead. Um, instead, this uh, it, it, it broke down things to their more constituent parts and it was able to tell a compelling story um, with like really interesting and multidimensional characters. Um, but it's also like satisfying. And I think that obviously I went in being like a Watchman Stan. Um, but I think from what I've heard of people who've never read the book, that it, it really worked for them as well. But yeah, uh, like Too Long Didn't Read, uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, for people that didn't read the book, um, I would think that this would be a fairly confusing watch. I was going to say anecdotally, um, just because my girlfriend had never read the book, which is a point of contention between us. Side, very quick side note, I bought her that book on our third date. And eight years later, she still never read it. <laughs> still with her? <laughs> um, but she's never read it. But she watched the TV show with me. And now that's finally convinced her to actually dive in. Um, so I'll say that much. The thing is, though, the stuff in the show that <clears throat> if you didn't have the, the comic, they would feel like huge plot twists and like, just with Vite and stuff like that, and like not yeah. even the reveal of who he is, but the idea that he caused like the the monstrosity in the like in the eighties and stuff like that would have been a big shock. It, it was definitely confusing, but it but it was one of those things where I got to because I knew the the source material quite yeah. intimately. I got to explain it, but what I realized it wasn't one of those like it's not like describing the MCU where you have to give all the nitty gritty details. Sometimes it's like here's what he was responsible for, and here's why it's impactful now. And like it's mm. it was a surprisingly easy thing to catch her up on. Like you pause it for maybe a couple of seconds and then explain. And like I thought the show does a lot of the heavy lifting in a way that some other you know cross media or like decades later sequels don't really do that same thing Mm. or it's also partly because maybe it's it's good to know some of the history but it's not 
necessary for this new story in a lot of ways. And I have a a point I want to make on like how it reuses the old Watchmen iconography in really interesting ways, but that we can get to that in a a bit. See, I've got criticisms in that, on that front. Okay. Well, Greg, you wanted to finish your point on um, how it is for new readers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a like, so I have a really bad habit of stopping things and explaining things like, especially with like MCU movies. Because I'll get asked a question, and you can't ask me a question because Wait, who's asking you the question? Sophie's asking me the question while she's watching the show. Or <laughs> she'll watch the film and she'll be like, she "Okay, asks. so so who's this guy? Like, what does he do?" And um, like if, when we're watching like MCU films, for example, or whatever DC films, she'll ask me about specific characters, and I will pause it, and I will <laughs> start talking. And I'll probably be talking for a good 30 seconds to a minute. And then Sophie's just like, I only asked you who he was and what he does. (laughs) So like, I can't help myself. If you ask me questions, I trail off. And and I have this bad habit of like talking for paragraph after paragraph about like, because I just, I just regurgitate the information that I have stored up in my silly little brain. But, um, when we were watching Watchmen, Sophie, the only experience Sophie has had prior to this was the movie, which kind of sets you up partially. It's just the only big difference is the way it ends. So that was pretty much all I had to explain. Mm-hmm. Like, was the difference between squids and Manhattan explosions. Like, that was it. But, like... Yeah, so I had to give Sophie like the the bridge notes on how it worked in the comic with Adrian Veidt with his island of um, artists and whatever and things like that. And it was, I mean, I can imagine like if you hadn't even seen the film, like I, I feel like it would be very confusing. I don't know. I mean, I know you're saying it's it's probably not, but like we're we're, we're talking about. I mean, these people we're, t- we're talking about people that have never read the book, i.e., Anna and Sophie watching it and and having a good experience with it and things. But they're still kind of had this kind of like Watchmen adjacent experience because I assume Anna would have seen the film as right as well, right, Ray? Yeah, she did watch the film when we were when I rewatched it for the the recording. But the thing is, I think some of the most confusing stuff is attached to Adrian Veidt and. His is deliberately the most confusing plotline, regardless of whether you know the history or not. You know what I mean? Like him being on yeah. the the moon of Europa. Jupiter, all that. Yeah, on Europa and all that nonsense. Like it's it's deliberately confusing, and then it's also deliberately quite flip. Like his story doesn't really matter that much. It's not about him. It's about his like his the corruption of his legacy, and it's it's more about Angela and her her story and her you know her lost connection to her past instead. And I think that's re- that's a really interesting way to do it because, like, I-, I was confused with what was going on on Europa for the most part and what his involvement in the story was. But the whole point of Vite's story is that he thinks he's so big and important in this, and then, like, when he gets back to Earth, he has to deal with the fact that no one gives a fucking shit. But that's what I mean. You could you could ignore his, you could ignore big chunks of his bit, which is the point. That's the point I'm making. Like, his yeah. is the, deliberately the most confusing part. If you took his story out of it, it's quite. A, it, it doesn't require the history that much apart from maybe explaining the squid fall and stuff like that. Yet. I think his story is one of my favorite things in the show. Yeah. I love, I love, the I, stuff. I love the stuff on Europa. Yeah. I think it's darkly hilarious, mm. but 
um like uh, the clones and everything else like i love i love this like mad little world he's got going on on europa um guess we were going to start at the end weren't we ray yeah i was going to say we, we should start at the end so that we don't just go through the the story beat by beat and i guess what i wanted to ask for the finale is like do we what was it aiming to do and did it achieve what you thought it was aiming to do? And like, for my part, I thought the culmination of the entire story, which, you know, revolves around Angela Abar and the trauma of her lost history and how it intersects and interacts with Manhattan and all of the, all the previous Minutemen um, and how it culminated in like how uh, Dr. Manhattan could have done better. And now there's an opportunity for it to be passed on to somebody who cares more and has the potential to do better than he did with the power that he was given. I think that's a really effective, like nine hour climb to that point and a really good resolution at the very end of the show. And I thought that was super effective. It really worked for me. And I thought it was really touching all along the way and all the different touch points to get there. Um, so I was mega satisfied with it. I mean, how, how do you guys feel? I, f- I feel like it, it cause it, it didn't just, tell a new story start to finish it tied up an old one like it mm. it it tied up all the loose ends it gave you a satisfying conclusion it like gave you it was more satisfying than the ending of the original watchman book oh i don't know about that greg i do i do feel like it was because it actually tied it all up it's like you know, you, you get to see where everything ends, like how it all ends up and it actually ties it all up in a nice little neat bow. And then you don't want anything else afterwards. I agree with that, but I think there's some things that the show delivers on that then raises additional questions that isn't necessarily a criticism, but like one of my things in the show is the way uh, Laurie is. I think like, yes, she's probably gone through a lot of stuff to get to where she is and like, like development of her, her character but i was like super interested in knowing how she got there not like her position in the fbi but she's she's quite a horrible person at times like she's really like abrupt and all this stuff and like there's certain things like that that i get additional questions for but as a series i agree it's like t- tied off to such a degree that i'd be anxious about a sequel series i don't want another series i'm so content i don't want any more and i really hope that they don't do any more Um, Because I know people like there's all this stuff floating around that I've seen on the Internet where it's like people have been asking about a season two and whatever else. But Lindelof doesn't have any plans to have anything to do with the season two, does he? And and they don't want to make it unless he has anything to do with it is what seems to be the. I guess depends how much money he's getting. (laughs) He says he's told this. He says he's told the story he wanted to tell. And I really hope he leaves it there. But yeah. what's stopping someone else? Because like it is very much a story within itself. But I'd quite, ha- although I've just said. See, I think I think a problem with this uh, line of inquiry and uh, thinking is that it's kind of pointless because um, in terms of this story and where we're at now in uh, July twenty twenty, it, mm. it is the end. And like, yes, obviously. Uh, <laughs> HBO I need stuff to fill on HBO Max so it's not going to be surprising if in a year or two they announce a, another uh, season of Watchmen but it's like a different showrunner 
mm-hmm. and it's different characters and stuff like that, but it still has bits and bobs, blah, blah. I might even disregard the show. But I, I think for the discussion of this particular thing, we don't know because we're in July 2020, but I, a yeah. lot of people seem to get wrapped up into the discussion of is it the end or not? And as far as we know, and for this story, it is the end. Is so the we end. should probably discuss it as being the end. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting where your guys, and I'm pointing to ask you and Greg here, um, it's interesting where your guys' focus lies, because like, I hadn't even thought about the question being presented as like, does it wrap things up neatly? I was thinking about it in terms of like, I wasn't expecting the plot of Angela Aber. I wasn't expecting her character to come into this. And I wasn't expecting the narrative, like the arc that she goes through like her discovery, her discovery about her history and how that ties into like the things that are going on in the world right now. Because I was surprised by that, I think I was so moved and satisfied by the ending. Leon, do you feel the same way on that? Like, I don't know where where your focus lied towards the end of the show. Well, yeah, I mean, my... uh, To start at the end, I've got to start at the beginning. (laughs) And at the beginning of the show, it opens on the... (laughs) 1920, 1921 Tulsa massacre and mm. I think that is a reason that it starts there and there's a reason why it ties that to be a Hood of Justice or a Will Reeves um, intro into, into this world and story because I think what it does then it's a masterful uh, tying of the bow of the original Watchmen story to the story that's telling now but also on what the theme of this season is going to be, which is uh, like generational trauma, uh, white supremacy, and um, like masks and anger. And I think that uh, going back to that first uh, sequence, we get to uh, get a lot of the the visuals and motifs that we'll later be seeing throughout the show. And it, it, it sets the, the show down and the audience down a path of what this show is. They could have easily had that uh, sequence be part of episode six as part of the flashback or something. Mm. Instead, they open the show with that. So it's like, for me, there's no real like discussion of the show without talking about like uh, like the racial trauma that comes of it and um, how that is directly tied into the first superhero uh, being his his Krypton, his origin story. So, like, tying that to the end, I feel that more important than, like, uh, quantum centrifuges and stuff like that is the discussion in the theatre, which is, like, a rebuilt theatre in, in the place where the show started uh, mm. nearly 100 years before. And it's the, the discussion there with, like, the first superhero talking to... Uh, his granddaughter who's likely going to become the first proper well I guess the first superwoman maybe <laughs> um, is uh, it, I think that's where like yeah the core of the theme because that's where the the end gets dovetailed and it's it's about like um, uh, wounds need air to, uh, to heal and how hiding behind masks uh, it, it, they were mean. They were means to ends for various different people throughout this story, including the original book. Um, but for, but they never got the resolution that they needed. They just uh, they were used for survival for some people and used to justify evil for other people. But in in the end, when it got to it, it's like that's not how you can how you get justice. It's not how you're gonna like heal. You, um, you ha- there's like. You, you have to be true to yourself. You have to be honest and you have to be out in the open. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point about that that final that line that Will Reeves gives her, like you can't heal under a mask, wounds wounds need air. Um, this might be slightly slightly off the point, but th- there's a point where um, Laurie tells her exactly that, but it doesn't it doesn't mean as much coming from her. She needs to hear it from uh, from Will Reeves, from her grandfather, for it to mean anything, and also the things that she's been through to get yeah. to that point. He reiterates the point that she's already heard, and she obviously must have heard over and over again being a policeman under a mask. And like, it's interesting because the talking about like the dovetailing bookends of the show. Reeves's origin story is also Angela's origin story. Like she didn't know her family. She didn't know her legacy or her roots. It was taken from her because of the thing that he went through as a child. And like to have it all tied up at the end and him revealing his machinations um, in order to like give her her legacy back. I, I, that worked really well for me. Yeah, with the uh, the scenes in uh, where she kind of like, where she does the DNA test and stuff in the heritage center and everything else. All of that was kind of cool. Yeah. It's a fun reveal. Um, mm. Especially because you don't know who Reeves is at the start. And like, he's painted to be a villain. He's painted, he's painted even almost as being like, oh, I forgot what it was. It's very early on in the show. Like there's a, uh, there's a sinister edge to him because we don't know. We don't know that he's a hooded justice until episode six. Uh, well, I, I kind of had an inkling that he might've been hooded justice. When he was sat outside the uh, the bakery, saying, "Do you think I can lift two hundred pounds?" There's some interesting feints with that because there's like stuff where yeah. he, he gulps down a hot cup of coffee without flinching, and he like sticks his hand in the boiling egg pot and whatever, and like yeah. it makes you think maybe he does have actual superpowers, but it kind of I think it's a red herring, uh, which is interesting because he, he's revealed not to be superhuman beyond the powers like being behind a mask of him and like using his anger to fuel him. He's just incredibly tough. <laughs> He's just an incredibly tough man. Um, I'd have never guessed he was hooded. Just I, I didn't know it would like cause that's very much like evolving what we already had in the comic to yeah. such a way that I could never have predicted. And obviously, the, well, it's a great payoff. But I would say in the comic they left it deliberately open ended. Um, yeah, anyone but, could have I been mean, hooded justice. That's true, but I guess so. But I would have never have. I mean, I believed it more when he says I'm Dr. Manhattan than because <laughs> justice never came in as like a, a factor in the story. Because at, at that point, although he's on the TV show, American hero story, whatever, he's he's like a back, he's somebody in the background. And then to bring him to the foreground as such an important character is, is it does a great job. And that, so yeah, I would have never have guessed. But this is, this ties into the point I wanted to make about how it, how the new show how this show co-ops and renews iconography that we recognize from the, from the comics and from the film and how it, it begins as things like, Hey, I, I recognize that. Look at the, uh, look at the eggs forming a, a yellow smiley face. And it gives you that happy dopamine hit for like recognizing something that, you know, lives in your history, but then it goes on to do, it's kind of, that's kind of like a faint in itself. It goes on to do something much more with it and, you know, re co-opting what, or not co-opting, re, uh, recontextualizing who Hooded Justice was, I-, I feel like is a really intelligent use of a character who doesn't do much in the show, but then in this new story gets revealed to like change the fundaments of the world that we've already 
come to love mm-hmm. in the Watchmen book, but then not not in a detractive way, but in an additive way. And that mm-hmm. takes some talent. That takes some skill to to change the fundaments of a story you love without fucking it up. Um, it's masterful. Like, do you, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, even just the way in regards to that, it, it, it changed my opinion of the Minutemen. And I think that's such an important moment when you're like, when uh, Hooded Justice is, is trying to kind of um, allude to the Cyclops stuff and their, their experiments and stuff. And uh, what's, mm-hmm. what's Metropolis? Metropolis is like just silences them basically. And that's like, damn, like, you know, even I believe, even just as someone who reads the stories in the original comic, like the little articles and stuff, you kind of weirdly idolize them. Mm. And to just and the truth behind that is great. Like, and that's the thing. I think that is tied to considering how little we know about them. The, mm. the most that we know about them is because of uh, Under the Hood mm-hmm. uh, and <laughs> Night at the First Night Owl, Hollis Mason, and that's a bar- autobiography written in nostalgia. So yeah, it's like yeah. that should that should be a red herring, but like we are. Uh, sort of taking it as gospel because not, yeah not just that as well but we're, yeah. we're um because of the history of comic books and heroes and stuff like that we are sort of programmed in a way mm. to um so even if they, there's like elements where they like oh this person might have been a nazi because they they thought like hooded justice was like um was it rolf um muller yeah some weightlifter or something and and obviously the comedian was the comedian but like um because of that, we have this whole thing of this, like, oh, they were the originals. It's like they're golden age superheroes and they're going around cleaning up the streets. And it has a sort of quaint vibe to it because they're like, they're just busting, busting heads and, and stuff. And you sort of forget that, like, essentially they are still to a degree agents of the state in a while. And, and like police forces just, I mean, as is more in the conversation now, but but historically, never been good for people who who fell out into the margins. So it's one of the things where the surprise should be like, oh, they did good. <laughs> but like, <laughs> uh, what the, what this show is great uh, doing is uh, again grabbing iconography that we've seen from before and having the sort of the racist poster for the bank. And it's mm. like um, they're all about sponsorship and and the brand and yeah. not and like performative justice. Whereas the actual hood justice is is actually trying to to combat the world, evil, make a difference. Yeah. Well, that's that kind of like brings me on to the Darwin Cook. Um, the, the only bit of before Watchmen that I think actually has any relevance to anything um, is the Darwin Cook Minutemen miniseries, um, which is kind of where they get the stuff for the um, American hero story clips in the TV show. Yeah. I'd heard this. Yeah. And um, so what they did was they've adapted portions of the Darwin cook comic. And then what they've decided is that all of that was sensationalist crap because it all came from Hollis Mason, because even in the Darwin cook um comic it's told through hollis mason's eyes so it's told through night owl one's eyes right um and it's like they've taken that and they've used that as the basis for american hero story um and then they've cut instead of hooded because hooded in that hooded justice was just like 
in in the Darwin Cook comic, Hooded, Hooded Justice sort of took a background thing, and they went they went the the German route with him. Like they, in it, it, Darwin Cook kind of took it to the point where Hooded Justice was going to end up being the strongman, the circus strongman, and it kind of pushed you towards that conclusion that he was the circus strongman. But also maybe he wasn't because we never know because we found the circus strongman dead, but we don't know if you know, um, and. It did the thing where this did the thing where it took that and it kind of flipped it where Hooded Justice was the one searching for true justice. Whereas in the Darwin Cook comic, um, it was, um, uh, what's her name? The, uh, the silhouette who was like the most heroic of the heroes. Hmm. Like the silhouette was the one who was looking for true justice. She was, she was looking to bust open, um, some kind of uh, pedophile ring, like to save the children, basically. And Hollis Mason was helping her with that, but obviously was a little bit inept. <laughs> and, um, but like, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of, it, and, and to, to have done that and flipped it and complete, it's like there was a riddle wrapped up in there that like, that has been, and they've completely bust that open. If you understand. Hmm. I have um, a question. Yeah. Have you, if, when you finish your point, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so my question is to you guys is what are your like sort of takeaways to like the point or like the theme of the whole thing? Um, for me, it's uh, my uh, as in the whole thing, as in the whole show. Well, yeah, from the, the the show, what do you? What's your takeaway from it when um, when it's all said and done? Um, it is a conclusion to Watchmen. It brings Watchmen. And keeps it, it brings Watchmen and makes it relevant to life today and to today's world. It brings what the idea of Watchmen forward, it brings that um, framework forward and applies it to today's world in a really deft way and also deals with um, a lot of things that it brings things to the forefront. It digs stuff up and brings things to the forefront that we should, that should have been at the forefront in the first place. Hmm. Cause a lot of things that I, I mean, like I didn't, I, I was shamefully ignorant of the, um, the, the massacre in Tulsa until watching this show. And I think that's, I think that's a really, really awful thing that they don't teach this stuff in schools as in history lessons and things like that. And, it's um, watching it now with what's been happening around the world with the, the, the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests and everything else. Um, and the things that we were protesting for in the UK when we were, you know, we're asking for the UK's colonial history to be added to the, um, to the, to the curriculum to teach that in schools so that we, you know, we have the whole truth and we don't just gloss over things. Um, and there's a lot of things that have happened that, that, you know, like a, a lot of things that I didn't know about unless I went out of my way to go looking for them. And this show, like, introduced me to what had happened in Tulsa and taught me all of that. And then off the back of that, I went and learned me some history. So, yeah, I, I was I wasn't aware of the, the Tulsa massacre either. So obviously that's like a wake up call as well. But I think most the most powerful episode is the, the POV episode with um Hooded obviously um, yeah. Angela's she's yeah. had the nostalgia, yeah. And it's like to see 
those situations and the way people are dressed, like it's not that long ago, and to see it from that point of view is to, it's like it's it's eye opening. Yeah, it really is. It's it's really not that long ago for and and for you know. I think because of that, that might be my favorite episode. Like for so many reasons, like the way it's like edited, everything yeah. about that episode is really ten out of ten. Like the, the, the like the lynching scene is just yes, first person lynching. Yeah, is, yeah, is, yeah, like brutal. It is. Brutal. Like it's bad enough seeing it like in other shows and t- TV and stuff, but like the, the way it's done, I, I was scared. I, I was scared. So, and hmm. I just think like. Obviously, there's a lot to take away and to unpack with the show, but that was my like biggest takeaway. And I think for a show to do that, regardless if it's based on a comic or whatever else, I think it deserves like you know high praise for that. Yeah, no, that is that is good. Um, and I, it's um, that is that is one of, that is one of my favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, my other favorite episode is episode five, um, which is the glass origin episode. Mirror dude. Uh, mirror dude. Yeah, yeah. Mirror, dude. <laughs> <laughs> mirror dude. Yeah, looking glass. I, I like him. He was my favorite character in the whole thing. I knew you were going to say that, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew it. He is, he is a very likable flip on the Rorschach character. I, yeah. I liked his character. Mm. But not only that, like I felt like I, I really, really sympathized with him. You know, when he's having the whole anxiety thing and he needs the security blanket of the alarm. Mm-hmm. And everything else, it's like shit. I've kind of been there in in different ways. I like how his story colors the world a bit more in a way that isn't doesn't necessarily have mu- add much to the plot, but like the whole thing about there being there being other worlds than the or other universes, and he has a like a support group to to deal yeah. with that anxiety is really interesting. Yeah. Did you read the support group flyer on Peterpedia? <laughs> I didn't actually get a chance to read uh, Peterpedia in the end, although I yeah. will be going away and doing that because, like, the whole the whole PE thing is hilarious to me as well. Like him potentially, yeah. or him. No, I say potentially because at the time when I was watching it, it was potentially yeah. Lube Man, but that's now that is canon based on the Peterpedia, right? Mm. Like he is yeah. the guy in the silver yeah, getup who slides yeah. into the sewer, which is hilarious. Um, yeah. Leon, to to answer your question, you're asking about like what what I think the show means to me. Um, like it's it starts off with a really broad question i think because it's it's about police it's called watchmen it's you know who watches the watchmen who watches the police and like the limits of the limits of the police and like do increasing constraints on these cops actually improve conditions for the people who are being harmed because like one of the the first things you see in the show after the tulsa riot is a um a black cop who has to go through this process to unhook his weapon because it's a new system they've got in place for the mass cops and they have to go through this thing. There's a new set of rules and a new set of structures for for the police. And it still ends up with the with the black guy being shot and killed by a white supremacist. Like I thought that was a really a blunt way to start the show, but then it and that's a very broad question to begin with. But then it goes on to talking about things about like like you were mentioning earlier, like the trauma of lost legacies and like the hidden and unspoken losses that come from having, you know, be, being ripped away from your history and being ripped away from your legacy. And like the flippant disregard that other people have who haven't gone through those mm. those same traumas. And then the complicity that various people have to a, a system of harm that largely could go unspoken or like can be unspoken in different circles. And then on top of that, like, because uh, one of the first things that little Will Reeves said is 
like he's reciting his hero on screen, like trust in the law. Like I feel like that's one of the one of the main theses of the show is like, what does it mean to trust in the law? What would it take for um, the the police that govern you to be trustworthy? And I think that that kind of spiders off into um, how you treat your allies and how how un, how trustworthy or untrustworthy the people who claim to be your allies actually are. Because there's multiple instances of allies in the show as having ulterior or selfish or even outright malicious motives. Like there's a whole spectrum of them. You have like, you have the guy in episode six as a flashback where um, Reeves brings in um, that guy, Frank, I think it is. like Fred. Fred. Uh, yeah, brings He's in Fred. Awful. Yeah. And like, what the thing is, you've got, a bunch of different cops and there's the guy behind the counter who's like look i'm trying to i'm trying to look out for you but that's still an untrustworthy ally he's still telling him what how not to act under the under the guise of like his own fear and then yeah. you've got um like selfish motives which would be captain metropolis who uh brings reeves in um you know they become lovers for a start and then when it comes to will wanting to enact like the changes he wants to make in his community he stopped from doing it because what um what captain metropolis really wants is his iconography his face to be used so that they can legitimize their organization so they can make money by appropriation yeah appropriation by being sponsored by a bank which then goes ahead and has a poster of exactly the thing that uh, hooded justice is trying to you know fight against and then you've got the outright malicious allies where it's like um senator keen who um pretends to be for one thing but is really doing it for his own like violent and um racist ends and like i think that that in in a nutshell is what the show meant to me and it's really what i wasn't expecting um even um the uh uh the police um the police chief hmm. um judd Jud, yeah even judd like you know being on the surface, an ally, and then having a clan robe in his closet. <laughs> it's my legacy. Just like Angela, yeah. where it was like, like I didn't want to believe it because he's set up to be like such a good friend of Angela and the family. It's like, nah, this can't. And like, she doesn't believe it herself, really. Like at the beginning, but yeah. Judge's Judge an interesting one. Not just that, but the painting. If you read some of the stuff on Petipedia, you know the painting in his house that that the episode is named for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's also part of the legacy being passed down. Um, like the the painting is passed down to the next person who knows the secret, basically. Um, and like that paint, and, and and obviously he's he's also both him and the senator are are in cahoots. They're working together hmm. to kind of keep the peace and pull the strings. So he's also basically. Um, uh, he's basically cavalry as well. Well, he, he is. I mean, his wife yeah. <laughs> is she, an upper echelon yeah. of, of uh, yeah, cyclops. Yeah, of, of, of cyclops. Yeah, they both are. <laughs> she has like a trapdoor in the lounge. Like, <laughs> like who gets a house that has a hidden compartment for your clan robes and <laughs> a, uh, a trapdoor? A, a trap door. <laughs> oh, that was a that was an amazing supervillain moment. And the fact the trapdoor didn't work straight away, and Laurie's just like, "What the fuck are you doing with that remote?" <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Like some of the little gags in this. Um, so if you guys, uh, I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but there's a really good Batman gag. Which one? <laughs> it's it's where um, it's where Laurie's character is first introduced and they, they get they take that guy down. 
mm. who's basically a billionaire playing dress up. And then there's a Superman gag as well, if you got that. I mean, there were multiple Superman yeah, which one? homages. Yeah, because like yeah. Will Reeves <laughs> picking up um, uh, the woman who eventually the, the the baby who eventually becomes his wife, right? Uh, she's yeah. swad- she's swaddled in an American flag. There's the bit where. The couple who Lady True offers... That's her- that, that's the one I'm talking about, because that one was the one that really hit me as a Superman reference, mm. where Lady True like is like offering them money and for their land and offering them legacy. Well, not money, money and legacy, because he's like, mm. she's like, I can give you a child. And like, I wanted them to... I Like, they they may as well have just called them the Kents. Because <laughs> the, then... The thing is, they're called the Clarks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> And uh, but the thing is, I think the, the most overt one is in episode six, where the uh, newspaper man, who is kind of like a reference to the newspaper man yeah. from from the book, mm. uh, he has Action Comics one, and it's yeah. where Will is able to tie his origin, which is leaving a, a world that has just exploded behind him, literally, yeah. uh, to go to a new world and uh, uh, tr- try and find himself there uh, using a disguise. Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing with like Kal-El. Mm. Yeah, Damn, I wasn't picking up on any of this. <laughs> Seriously, I was. Just, I think yeah, some of those things are, are less jokes and more references, though. Like the one I actually found funny and made me laugh out loud was Lady True. Like uh, the thing is, they go that's beyond. A scary scene. <laughs> yeah, it is, but that it goes it goes beyond reference and homage. Yeah. It becomes like the yeah. It becomes part of the thing of like co-opting old iconography to revitalize it for this new story. Like there is, yeah. there is a lot of Superman in this story, but it's not, it's not a direct link. Because I mean, mm. Will's married to a reporter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> right, ask you. You were saying about Lady True and how that was a scary scene. I just think because I don't. I mean, you've, you see her briefly before then with Will. And you kind of like, I think that's what made me unsure about Will at the beginning because you see uh, him and Lady True there together. But I just think that's a really unnerving scene because I feel like you don't know what she's capable of. Mm. Like, you really believe she would kill the baby? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, she would. Like, you see it happen, don't you, later on? Not with that baby, but I'm sure she grinds up some. Oh, is that vital? No, a a puppy gets disintegrated using her tech, but it's um, Looking Glass's ex wife. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good scene. But I didn't pick up on the even being called the Clarks. I was just like, no, nah, I didn't know <laughs> you on your phone or something when you watched. No, no, that. no. I was. I think I was just so because I spent a lot of time trying to yeah. work stuff out because I felt there was a lot of mystery and like I'm I'm a sucker for that. And so I was focusing on trying to think what stuff could be rather than. Spot in action comics number one on a <laughs> bookshelf or something. That was, <laughs> no, yeah. I did see. He's reading it to him. It is right in yeah. the middle of the frame. Mm, in that scene. All right yeah. then. But it, I mean, to be fair, like, fair enough. Yeah. You 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 didn't pick up on that, but like that doesn't mean the show was any less enjoyable. No, I think not at all. Where, mm. Whereas on the the flip side, mentioned the the Watchmen motifs and stuff. Mm. I felt some of them were way too on the nose. Really? In, in what way? Yeah. Just. There was times I felt, more so in the beginning, but there was times I felt like, oh, we need to put something in. It's, we need to put in the smiley face. We need to do the, the blood splat because it happens on the judge's The blood splat on the police bar. badge. Yeah. yeah um, like the, the, the one that annoyed me, actually, and I, 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 this is the big, like, I feel like they, they trick the audience. You know when you first see Vite on Europa 
Mm-hmm. At that point, at least for me, I didn't know it was Vite. I didn't know where they were, but it has the, the skull and crossbones mm-hmm. flag. And I was like, oh, are they implying this is like a Black Freighter? Is this going to be the Black Freighter story running through the show? So I felt mm-hmm. like I, I was cheat not cheated, but I was leaning so hard into that theory that I was at no point putting together that it was Vite. But in a way, it yeah. kind of is the Black Freighter, their version of a Black Freighter story being told throughout. Yeah. Do you want to explain that, Leon? It's just like evolution. So like, oh, I mean, uh, how it applies to this show or in general? I just finished that thought of how it is, it's their version of the Black Freighter. Uh, so what happens, so like obviously the, in the, the Black Freighter goes through the original Watchmen book and it's... Um, it, it's seemingly this this undetached story, and then later on, through a line from Vite, uh, uh, it, 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 the theme the theme is all tied up, and it's like, oh, it's really speaking to his um, uh, his story about what he's about to do and what he does, and his regret to do with it, and how there's nowhere left for him to go, uh, and he he is now a man about like a home type thing. Um, and in this, it kind of is in the same in the same way because it's one disconnected from everything else. Uh, but in, in a in a in a more thematic way, uh, he's there for what was it seven years? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and in a way, it, it is his kind of thing because at, at first he goes there, he's taken there by uh, John, and it's like a paradise for him. And because on Earth, like no one's at his level, he no one can thank him for what he did da, 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 and so he feels he has no peers and he's sort of done so he's sent up there and then he's spent at first he's a god who has his uh his servants who who love him but after a while that gets boring um and he realizes it's really a prison um and he and i think that whole a lot of that story is him dealing with the guilt but also his awkward place as someone who's sort of detached from the rest of humanity because of what he did. And mm. the fact that um, he can't get any praise or admonishment for it because uh, a handful of people know and what he did is seemingly keeping the world together. And then, so it starts off with him like happy uh, with it. And then later on, it's like you, um, he's writing uh, plays and stuff. <laughs> he's basically <laughs> sourced the world and then it becomes a thing of, I need to escape here, and uh, uh, my daughter has uh, has a satellite that, that's coming soon. And then it just becomes a whole, like a whole scripted thing of like, uh, I'm going to try and escape. I'm going to try and leave a message so I, I can escape. But then also, everyone sort of has a loose role. It kind of creates like an open world RPG to a degree. <laughs> but you've got like the game warden, who's who's probably his only notes were be a mean adversary. Uh, and then all the Crookshanks and Phillips, they have different different roles. And like, even to the defense, or no, the prosecution that um, the uh, the uh, what <laughs> I live in this country. What what do we call our our like lawyers who wear the the head thing? Barristers. Barrister. Yes, that's the word. So like the Crookshanks barrister, who is the prosecution. <laughs> uh, even she gives him a wink, and everything she says sounds like it was written by Adrian. By yeah. yeah, the whole thing is just like this big uh, way for him to like experience. It's almost like sort of cutting yourself to feel something. That's what mm. that's what it is. I mean, he lets himself yeah. get imprisoned for a year. Like it, it, it's all 
in in a way, like it's all his sort of uh, atonement and punishment, but through his eyes, it's all still yeah playing games. Yeah, because the, the point I wanted to get to with that is like it doubles down on how just how disconnected he is, and also what I was saying earlier about like different people having flippant viewpoints on what it means to go through tragedy. Because mm. he 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 does this thing where he like spends seven years and he he um, manufactures his own tragedy his own trauma but he like at the very end when he's getting into the spaceship there um lady true sends for him he's like master why did you make me wear a mask and because masks make men cruel and like that ties into all the other themes of the show but really what he wanted to do was create his own worthy adversary and even at that he failed and for him creating this source of conflict he had to create this conflict for himself as a source of distraction or a source of amusement and then it goes back to what's happening on earth. And there's people who have conflict thrust upon them. You know, they have to, they, they don't, they don't devise their own conflict. They don't make their own adversaries because they're bored. They have to deal with real, real world problems, real world malice. And they put on their mask to protect themselves, whether they be the actual uh, people like hooded justice or whether it be the police when they've got their yellow mask on or whether it be the detectives who actually become like superheroes themselves it's all to, it's all for protection. It's all like a uh, a defensive measure, and for mm-hmm. him, it's just uh, a colourful uh, character element, something mm-hmm. to keep him entertained. <laughs> yeah, because there's also the thing of like he, when we're talking about legacy, and then there's also the thing of how um, Lady True is his descendant. She, you know, he's her legacy, and the one of the things that he's most proud of, Vi is most proud of. Um, the fact that his parents, you know, had the ability to pass on this legacy to him, all this money and all this wealth and all this power. And he's, he always brings up that he gave it away so he could become a self-made man. And like, he had the means to do that. Whereas yeah. like, Lady True didn't have those resources. She was like, he, he says how her intellect wasn't given, it was stolen, but she makes what she wants of it regardless. And her, her claim to legacy is like born of malice in and of itself. She wants to prove him wrong. She wants to say that she yeah. could do better than him. She could do better than his reruns of what he thinks is the way to solve the world's problems yeah. and then spit it back in his face. Which... But it's also, oh, sorry, I was going to say, no, 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 go on, go on. it also comes from a, like Vite, like did everything he did from a place of privilege mm. because he, he's this, this, this like blonde white guy um, who even if he gave away his his um, all of his fortune, he's still like a foot in the door more than uh, Lady True would have been. Mm. Also, from... there was a template to to follow, which he followed, which yeah. is Alexander the Great. Mm. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and Lady True, coming from the American colony, as it is in this show, mm. like America have basically gone in and colonized Vietnam. Um, like she probably would have had it that much harder. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like he's telling her to do something, but he doesn't, and he's not recognizing when he has that conversation with her. The first thing I picked up on was, I felt like he doesn't recognize that. Yeah. But do you not realize that it's going to be like a hundred percent harder for her anyway? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> but yeah. And I like that. They don't, they don't lean too hard into that. Cause they go heavy yeah. on some other similar yeah. points, but yeah. Yeah. I just want to jump back to like the 
the motifs sort of thing. Mm. I think there's there's cleverer, smarter nods that like one that stands out for me that's not in your face is when Laurie first meets Carl. They've got like this really like good chemistry and they're like they're really yeah. friendly. Mm. Like, that to me is better than let's stick a smiley face somewhere. And like yeah. fans of the show might notice it or they might not, but on like a second watch, it's it's like it's it spells it out for you. And that to me is better, uh, uh, more well executed than sticking a smiley face. Yeah, I, but maybe I, I'm I, cynical. I, I can understand that because um, from my point of view, I can. I'm not someone who's uh, quick to to want to have that type of stuff. If you know what I mean. Mm. So it's like. I I'm fine with the thing happening at the beginning of a movie and then the thing related to it happens at the end. I don't need to see a flashback to the thing that happened at the beginning. <laughs> but yeah. I think the point uh with this and and it's it's, it's successful to varying degrees is that um like trauma being generational, I think that the one of the points of all the iconography coming back is is one yeah, it's some fun Easter eggy stuff. But I think, well, Easter egg, like egg, <laughs> literally. But like, I think that um, part of it is to, uh, like, like what Rahul said with what uh, Lady True says, with where it, it, it's a rerun. And I think part of it is that, like, the show is like heavily based on like like history, and it's about like if you don't know your history, how can you move forward? Like, mm. if, if if we don't know our history, we're, we're 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 stuck to make the same mistakes again and again. The same type of uh, like violence and uh, uh, oppressiveness will will be forced on the same people because uh, we don't know our history or they don't know their history or, or whatever. Mm. And I think that with having all these things repeat, it one is a uh, tip of the hat to the book, which would bring up um, different visuals again and again and again and again mm. to, to ram home its different meanings. And I also think in this, it's a way to tie it together. So I think that when we're getting to um, episodes six and eight, which uh, which are spent doing lots of... Uh, actually, no, sorry, six and seven, which are spent doing lots of, um, like, flashback work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's helpful there because it ties things together. So as we see with episode six, which is the nostalgia trip, you're getting the history, which is all in black and white, and then you're getting things that which are out of that timeline slightly, uh, mm. which are in colour. So it's like, uh, in those particular cases, it's Will um, and Angela in his mind, but like uh, Will, uh, or I guess Will and Angela together sort of experiencing his history. So like we see bits of the Tulsa Massacre uh, overlaid to like New York in the late 30s, early 40s. Mm. And I think that, and... I think, like, to a degree, some of them are, like, wrapping up the theme. So, like, Fred Trump, sorry, uh, Fred, uh, Fred T and Sons, um, <laughs> him throwing the thing in the delicatessen is obviously mirrored in the first scene where we see, like, uh, a racist person throwing a Molotov cocktail into one of the uh, one of the shops on Black Wall Street. And I yeah. think, like, you get a lot of that throughout. And, like, in terms of what you're more focusing on, which is the Watchmen stuff, to a degree, it works. So I'd say that it works when you get have stuff like I don't know the yellow accents of it for like the police's masks and the weapons and stuff like that, because that one kind of means nothing and it's but it kind of looks cool. Mm. And then I guess it can be overplayed when it's like uh, how many times do we need to see the blood 
trip on something. So I can understand what you're saying, but I can yeah. I, I see where um, where it comes from, and I think that it's more successful than it's not. And I'm generally not a person who enjoys that type of over callback, like yeah. uh, done visually. Mm. Oh, you see, I'm I'm I quite like stuff like that, <laughs> but that's me because <laughs> I'm, I'm you know, but. Um, I quite liked um, like little things like when uh, Vite's on trial and we see like the original sketch of the squid mm. um, and uh, looking glass eating beans from a can <laughs> with his mask like peeled slightly up, like all I mean, those I, kind of things. For me, like I like that kind of stuff because I just like the production and like the knowledge that goes into it. But to me on its own, it doesn't really have that much value. It's just cool. Um, yeah. I think, I don't know, I think um, I, I think that's part of the magic trick as well. Because, like, it wants you to feel, this is what I was saying at the start, like, it wants you to feel warm and fuzzy and recognise these moments. But then it is also like uh, like what the book was doing. And like Leon said, like, it hammers it home. It hammers home its points and all the different ways that these things can have meaning through the repetition of it. And and also, also don't you think it, it has a bit of the Force Awakens weight to carry in a way? Because it's creating a thing that it say it, the show is called Watchmen, not Watchmen, whatever just mm. the subtitle is the show's called Watchmen. And it has like a handful of the characters from the original book. Mm. Uh, and we know why it's called Watchmen because ultimately at its core, it's, it's speaking about a thing in the way that uh, Watchmen, the book was commenting. So that was created in a time of uh, unrest and fear of like the cold war and nuclear war. And then, and in this show, that that uh, thing is tied to like yeah uh, like uh, white supremacy and um, like like uh, ra- uh, racism on on all its its varying different levels, and I think that um, uh, it has to live up to its framework. Yes, yeah. and, and that's the thing. It also, it has to. I think it, using a bit of, of a broad brush it has to do that in a way to make it watchmen so, mm. so like and there's so much stuff in there i mean there's stuff that's directly tied to the storyline which is obviously the the seventh cavalry wearing rorschach star masks and then there's this nice little subtle stuff like when um when will is calling up captain metropolis and, and he's saying like um cyclops has got this plan because they did the thing in the harlem cinema and he's like um blah blah like you can sort up black unrest at another time and obviously that that is a callback to the uh crime busters and their little map that the comedian sets on fire and showing one of the things being black unrest and obviously tying into the whole thing of like these would be generally agents of the state who would be crushing dissent at a time when civil rights were trying to push forward but it's like stuff like that is, is is really cool but then i think that the more overt stuff is still cool but like when it's done right so like i think the first episode is loaded with a bunch and but i still think it's cool to see like oh the police are using uh uh um dryberg's tech now mm. so it's like so they have an out there's no reason for them to have an owl ship thing and <laughs> have an archie of their own but it's kind of cool to, and it kind of works in the world especially yeah them explaining away like people being scared of lithium batteries and stuff because of Dr. Manhattan and how there's no smartphones and stuff like that. That was one of the things I found really interesting about this show was um, passing out the differences between our timeline and the Watchmen timeline and how they are behind us technologically, um, massively behind us technologically, because 
Lady True. Uh, they've got in... a portal gun. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they've got they've got stuff that we don't have, but then Lady again, True they've got a man from Europa back to, to back yeah. to Earth. They also had electric, electric cars got... in the 60s. I'm, yeah, I'm talking about cars, consumer yeah. electronics and shit, right? Because they've got things that we don't have. And they're way more advanced than we are because they've got all this knowledge that Dr. Manhattan gave them. But because they were scared of that knowledge for so long after discovering that, well, after the whole thing, the whole scandal breaks that Dr. Manhattan causes cancer. Um, like you've got like things that have been pushed back that aren't um, things that are just happening in this show that we've had for like a decade or so. Like uh, the fact that they were making a big thing in the Petypedia pages that I read that Lady True was giving out HDTVs to people mm. to apologize for the like the, the raucous she was thing. causing by building the uh, oh, it's, yeah, oh, it's yeah, to apologize yeah. for the nostalgia thing, isn't it? Is it? I think as I no. nostalgia or it's the disruption from the millennium it was the clock. clock. It was yeah. the yeah she gave she gave HDTVs to everyone in Tulsa to apologize for the clock or something. Where's um, this info coming from? Uh, Petypedia. So if you go to the official HBO Watchmen site, you can go to. Oh, so this uh, is right. Okay, I thought it was so just something it, random. Fan it's their thing. version of all the supplementary supplementary materials from the book. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, like in the book, at the back of each chapter, you'd get like an a, a, an article from the New Statesman or something like that. Um, and in and it's called Petypedia because it's uh, maintained by the agent. Yeah. PT, yeah, and also PT writes a lot of memos that aren't memos; they're basically just fanboy articles. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was just some like fan-made wiki page that you no. were, like no, canon no. enough <laughs> info with. You know, they, they got HDTVs. I'll tell you what; like one of the cool things that they do do with that, you know. Um, so you've got you guys familiar with Frederick, Frederick Wortham? No, uh, the guy who wrote Seduction of the Innocent which um, was the whole thing about how comics are bad for kids and led to the kind of like the supposed censorship, led to the censorship of comics and the introduction of the comics code and everything else, right? Because they did all these Senate hearings and things where he, and, and, and things about him saying that um, comics depict, you know, like either overt or covert depictions of violence and drug use and whatever else in crime comics and horror comics and everything else was was corrupting children's minds and he he was like this prominent um like uh psychiatrist at the time who who wrote this book and people kind of took that stuff on board and this is where we got the comics code from well in uh the watchman universe frederick wortham because Co- superhero comics weren't a thing and it was pirate comics his his psychiatry and his his theories were applied to real life superheroes and they came up with the wortham scale or the wortham spectrum i think they call it where they assess um superheroes personalities on the wortham spectrum so mm. like that's how that's how police um and how um, people in the anti-vigilante units and things like that, where a like assess these, like do do like behavioural, um, or what do they call it? Where they do like a it, the whole thing that Mindhunter was about, where they they can do a, a what do they call it? A psychoanalysis? Not a psychoanalysis. No, they can they can work up a um, like a profile or that's it a profile yeah so they use this stuff to get a profile of the, the supposed vigilante that they're hunting 
so they can like assess their personality using the Wortham scale, which I thought was pretty cool. That's like a really, really, really nerdy thing. But <laughs> I Is thought that was P- awesome. Pedipedia info. It's it's in the Pedipedia articles. Right, they just okay. they just they just like wantonly mentioned the Wortham scale, like uh, or the Wortham spectrum, where they're like they mon- mention Rorschach, and then um, where is it? If I can find it, I'll read it out. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, unlike season one, which focused on the life and times of Walter James Kovach, a.k.a. Rorschach, who is an objectivist sociopath on the Wortham spectrum. So, yeah, it's cool how they do that. Um, and I thought that was awesome. And another thing that this stuff taught me as well, you know, um, the uh, the hero in uh, Trust in the Law, Bass Reeves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's real. Yeah, he yeah. Was a, yeah, he was a he was a real marshal. Um and he was like, he was actually, I think he was actually the first black marshal, um, the first black deputy U.S. marshal uh, west of the Mississippi River. Um, and he was he was a, a real life historical figure that you can read about. And I've been doing some reading about him because I found all that sort of fascinating. Yeah, the, uh, the Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I fell into. Yeah, because he he worked closely with Native Americans, so that's where they got the inspiration for the Lone Ranger from. Because he would often have Native American guides with him and stuff like that. And that's uh, why was... it works perfectly in the show for him being the inspiration for Will. Yeah. Because in the same way that um, Bass Reeves is sort of forgotten to history uh, for for a lot of people, but everyone knows the Lone Ranger, it's the same way in like that that co-option yeah. uh, is, is just, it happens throughout history, doesn't it? And I yeah. think that's one of the... Uh, at least like a mini theme throughout the the show and it ties to a lot of things because obviously Hooded Justice is the first hero but he has to pretend (laughs) that he's white white. Uh, (laughs) but then like it brings up all these other heroes and no one knows that the history that just like with rock and roll music uh, well most American uh, popular music and uh, so many things uh, it was like created by like uh, black people or people of colour but then yeah. they weren't the ones to sort of get their recognition for it. Mm. And, and I think the, it's such a smart way to tie in in this show. Yeah, and if you look up, um, because there's a whole uh, there's a there's a whole piece about um, trust in the law on Peterpedia. Yeah. <laughs> God, Greg, are you sponsored? <laughs> yeah, man, I love Peterpedia. It's, it's, <laughs> this is this is like my jam, like learning, like getting to learn real history through comics and TV oh, yeah, shows. For like sure, so. Yeah. Um, the guy who directed the in-show film, um, Trust in the Law, which is a fictional movie, um, the director of that, Oscar Michaud, was a real-life director who yeah. directed silent films. Um, he was an African-American author and film director. Hmm. And uh, he did a lot of silent films, and um, he, I think he did some uh, sound films as well. But yeah, um, so they used like real life. I love when they do that, when they use real life, real life figures and, and like put them into these alternative timelines, even like the, the president being Robert Redford. Well, I'm saying like, because you have like Redford uh, yeah. coming in and then there's a lot of things around that. So like yeah. when um, Angela goes to the cultural center, which is built in Greenwood at the site, uh, the main site of Black Wall Street Massacre. Um, the, when you're going through the DNA stuff to find your find your family, the person you're greeted by is the U.S. Treasury Secretary, who in that world is uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., who is the historian, who in America is known widely for um, 
the um, I can't remember the name of the show, but it's the show where people like celebrities go on to find out their roots and their DNA. Um, oh, I know what you mean. Uh... Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> on top of that, he was also because um, he was a professor at Harvard as well. He's also the person who where we got that bear summit during Obama's early years. So what happens is that he was trying to get into his house because he got locked out of his house, and then he was arrested on his own doorstep by like. The, the police around there and then obviously that that blew up into a big brouhaha because obviously he wasn't um <laughs> he wasn't committing any crime um <laughs> and then that got to a big thing where like it, it got so big that uh obama stepped in and they had what was called the bear summit and uh this is super like centrism in in 2010 or whatever uh, <laughs> and then so that him the cop and um obama like meet up for this thing to sort of quell the the uh the unrest that that came from it but it is funny that he is picked to be that because uh especially in that particular thing the way how this world has has worked works is that uh people get what's referred to as redfordations which are reparations for um in the in in the show it, it seems to only highlight from what i've looked at that it's only for victims of like the tulsa massacre it's not reparations for like other other horrible stuff, and America has, as we do over here in the UK, has uh, thousands thousands of uh, situations, events, yeah. and cases where they've massacred uh, or like grossly hurt people's lives. But it seems like the Tulsa Race Massacre is a thing that is one of the only things that has led to people getting redfordations. Hmm. And it's funny because in the, in the real world. Uh, Henry Lewis Gates Jr. was uh, is not a proponent for e- e- even really the looking into reparations in real life. Whereas in the show, it, he's like the AI version of him is the person who helps you get them when you tie your family tree to someone who died in the massacre. So I thought that was kind of kind of a funny mm. flip and twist. And obviously, he had to act in the show. So, but uh, and I think I believe that his. Um, his feelings have changed on that as time has gone on, but it is an interesting wrinkle, like adding that particular part of, of even like recent history to, to the show, as well as what you were saying, Greg, with like the older history as well. Yeah. I think it only um, deals with the, the Tulsa race massacre in regards to Redford Asians, but I get the impression reading some of the extra material for the show that it was actually applied to other things as well. Um, because there's they kind of there's a document that kind of mentions like that obviously other atrocities alongside the Tulsa um, the Tulsa race massacre and they mentioned the Red Summer of 1919 as well. Mm. So I don't know. I, I think I, I feel like in universe it is something that is repar- it is reparations to um, victims of and families of victims of for for a lot of different things, not just one thing. Yeah, it still feels like it's yeah. quite limited in, in its scope. Yeah. Like it, it feels yeah. almost more performative than it is actually useful. Yeah. Because if you look at the world, uh, the world in 2019 in the show isn't that great. It's interesting. I wanted to talk about like the design of that cultural center. Because like, <laughs> Craig, you mentioned HDTVs earlier and like Lady True was handing out HDTVs, but they've got flipping holograms. And yeah, they... this, is, this is where it, it bounces me about. Like the, the, the stuff that... Um, Topher's playing with as well. Mm. Yeah, his, like the his... magnetic Lego bricks or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but like, I, specifically about the cultural center, like, this is just me nerding out over 
like um uh, museum design but i really like that there's a like you you plug in your history you get like you know she, uh, abar has the swab from will reeves and she deposits that into the machine and it spits out like a tangible object like this the acorn, acorn yeah uh, which is a representative of her legacy that you know she didn't have and the whole one of the major points of this center is people can go and rediscover their history rediscover their family tree like uh, get the acorn which grows the roots of this tree and i like that in in universe there's this like there's an artistic represent they've gone this ex- they've gone to the extra mile of like um making giving form to function because then she has to take the acorn deposit it into this thing and then you get to physically see like a hologram of your family tree being fleshed out and like historical documents being attributed to like the different faces and stuff i just thought that was that was a nice place to put some you know art design resources into because if that kind of stuff existed in real life as a way for you to discover your your heritage without having to go through some skeevy like dna harvesting <laughs> app on yeah um, yeah it's, it's i thought that was super cool but leon you said something about how like it's performative as well like w- what did you mean by that because i think that if it's um like if it's like a handful of cases then, like, because reparations aren't aren't uh, aren't really about giving money to people who were like descendants of slaves or whatever. Even though that's what it's often flattened to in the, in discussions. Mm. But what it, the the main thing of reparations, at least like modern conversations on it, and I mean, this show is partially birthed because Lindelof read um, Tanahasi Coates' uh, "The Case for Reparations." Mm. Uh, which is where he found out and where I also found out about the 1921 uh, Tulsa Race Massacre. Um, But, like, uh, the whole main concept is, like, uh, sort of restoring, like, restorative measures to uh, level the playing field and to, like, to fix things up in in ways that aren't just temporary, like, um, affirmative action. So whether that takes... Whether that takes the case of like wealth, like and which is uh, writing people checks, or whether that is in the case of uh, fixing certain places, like in, uh, fixing the schools and the infrastructure in in towns and cities that have been abandoned, there's no end goal of that conversation yet. But mm-hmm. I mean, the, the things that they were talking about last year and the year before in Congress, when they they were finally having those conversations, is is a starting path. And I think it's performative in the way where if you cut people a check. Because like in this town, your grandparents were slaughtered or whatever. So like here, here's some cash or whatever. That's obviously good for the people who are there. And if there's other cases where for, for other people who are part of the Red Summer, that's great. But then it, it feels like it's um, it's put it's putting a, a bandaid on a wound, and, and we know wounds need to heal. But um, it's uh, it's not actually uh fixing the wound it's not actually going to the underlying circumstances and that's where it's kind of like Shh, we sorted you guys out come on now we sorted you guys out yeah. don't ask yeah. them for anything anymore whereas instead you'd for a true attempt at like reparations it'd actually be removing the institutional barriers which still stand in the way of various people uh peoples trying to just live their life so that's where I think that is a good critique of this system because it's not treated like a, um, it's not like the West Wing where it's like, it's not like some 
some liberal um and i say liberal i mean that in the the lowercase l it's not some liberal um like democrat center it's not, it's not a case of like uh, removing term limits is, is 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 bad when it's the republicans but it's good when it's the democrats it's not it's not really shown that way because what we're, what we see is that there's a lot of similar ills and a lot of because things are slightly more progressive you get like the, the backlash is more overt in terms of people like the seventh cavalry but mm-hmm. they haven't really fixed america's problems instead they've just added stuff to it so like american hero story which is um which is kind of like it's like a mashup between the Zack Snyder movies and uh, like you know like the the uh, Ryan Murphy shows like American Horror Story and stuff like that. It's like a, a mashup of those two. But like before that starts, you go through like ninety seconds of disclaimer at the beginning. It's like, it may include violence, blah 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 blah. And it's like the cop at, right at the beginning, the one who gets shot when uh, he's speaking to the guy. He has to ask him permission if he's willing to aunt answer like to, to begin being asked basic questions mm. um and it, it shows you that a lot of this stuff is just like and like with the gun release and all that stuff it's mm. it's not actual measures to have create a better world because they've not gone to the source and tried to fix stuff instead they've just tried to like to prick stick some solutions onto onto a, a decaying structure and as evidence in the show it doesn't really hold up after a while and start, starts to fall apart. To mention the the Red Foundation in the series, Red Foundation, the kids are even like mocking Topher for it as well. Yeah, point, yeah. If I remember. So it's like it's it's something that like everybody in the the town seems to know about, and it's kind of well, yeah, it's a big thing because like when Angela goes to the cultural center in the day, there mm. are people picketing it, mm. and it's but like. For like just October 2019, it's like, oh wow, this is the flip universe because we've got like right wing people holding like placards and stuff outside the cent- uh, outside the center, and it's like, oh yeah, this is the flip universe. Like it's racists would be happen. doing that, and then like during COVID uh, in what? like 2020, yeah. we, we got that, but instead yeah. instead of them protesting this like even before um, the Black Lives Matter stuff, even. They were protesting being able to get haircuts, oh, and then haircut. a few weeks later, they were counter-protesting statues. And it's like, wow! They, like the show, I think the show feels like it was ahead of its time, but just only because like history is ahead of its time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it does. When you when you watch it now, it feels pre-science. It really does, and like the whole. The, yeah, it's just there's so much like watching this, like when I watch this now and me and Sophie watching it and we're just like, this is just like completely on the pulse. Like, it's almost as if they predicted it. <laughs> it's weird, but yeah. Do you, I don't just steer away too much from like the, the thematics of it, but there's a question I wanted to ask, which was something I never occurred of until just the other day. Sorry, it didn't occur to me until just the other day. And that was that when Looking Glass gets in his bother at the start of that like backstory episode. Does he have powers? Because he can read people in a way that is No No. He doesn't have his just... powers. No one has his powers. Because I thought he'd maybe he's gained them by somehow surviving because of the the House of Mirrors or whatever. No, I think no, no. I think Watchmen has always dabbled in like making you think that, you know, normal normals potentially have powers because of the things that they've gone through. True. I think what it boils down to is he's got like increased empathy from all of the things that he's gone yeah. through. 
and also he's he's like a, he's obviously a behavioral psychologist or something yeah because it's one of those things where you could you could say in a way that lady true is she a super villain because she's got a genius intellect and she's like the mm. jeff bezos of uh of that world <laughs> but like um no she's she's just really smart and her mum was smart her dad is obviously the smartest man in the world <laughs> it, it, she's mm. just really smart <laughs> Smart, and then in combination with ruthless, yes, and, and yeah. like her, her like upbringing and advantage has given her an insight into how to fix think uh, certain things that she believes need to be fixed. Mm. Lex yeah. Luthor. <laughs> I was just curious. It popped in my head the other day, and I was thinking, hmm, because he is pretty good at it. Now, I guess just because someone's pretty good at something, it doesn't mean they're but they there are superpowers. <laughs> There are people that can do what he does in real in real life, like. And like, if you if you think about it from the perspective that he doesn't have superpowers, what he does is either kind of bogus or extremely clever. Because <laughs> like putting people in a room and then just watching them as you trigger them with like images and uh, like just things that would either inflame their senses or like, it, would you take a shit on the American flag or something like that? Well, there's a few of these really funny things that he does yeah. to try and pull, pull a, like an emotive reaction from people. Yeah. How would it make you feel if I took a shit on the American flag? <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think like, like uh, a thing, like, like you were saying, like that comes from like the increased empathy of like being in Hoboken when, when during the squid drop, but like, mm-hmm. um, I think related to that as well, um, like he's so good at telling people lying as well for the same reason that his empathy is so good in that situation because someone lied to him to get him into that the house of mirrors. Mm. <laughs> and at that point, it's like, you're never going to let anyone lie to you again in that situation. Yeah, because his yeah. ex-wife even says, like, you're still you're still expecting people to, you know, strip you naked and run away with your clothes or something along those lines. Yeah. And like, yeah. he's still, like, you know, 20 years on or whatever it is, or 30 even, um, he's still got that tragedy to him. He's still affected by like, not just like the thing that happened to him minutes before the world exploded. You know what I mean? Um, speaking of that moment, I really love like, because we haven't talked about the aesthetics too much of this show. I love that bit where he comes out of the, the house of mirrors and like sees all the bodies it's, so around. it's insane like it and then it pulls back it does the it does a very similar shot that was taken from the books and put in the movie where like there's a really intense zoom out and then you get to see the whole city it's like that but even further developed where it goes through like the the lit up ferris wheel and then pulls what pulls out all the way over jersey over into new york and you see like the squid just strewn around everywhere in yeah, herald's yeah. way like because I remember watching that. I remember thinking, Greg's going to love this uh, at the time watching it. Mm. But like, because uh, it ties directly into the thing. But I didn't think the show was going to go there at all. And I, because mm. at the beginning, I didn't think that we were actually going to properly get any Manhattan stuff. I just thought they were going to like nod to it as a thing. Yeah. But like, when they said Hoboken 1985, I was thinking like, oh, they're giving this guy a backstory. But like, that's awfully close to New York. Nah, nah. And then I put it out of my head for a while. So then when that rumbling happens, I was like, oh my God, they're doing it. And then I thought that as we were backing out and we went over the Hudson, I thought it would like uh, transition to like today. And then mm. it kept going and it kept going. And I started to like kind of get a bit shook. Like they're not going to do it, are they? And then you see a bit of you see a bit of the tentacles. Like, oh my god, they're doing it! They're doing it! And then they just back all the way out. And I, I remember thinking like, one, it's an awesome 
comic book moment thing for like comic book lovers, but it's also, and especially those of us who were deprived of Squid in the Sex mm-hmm. movie, but then mm-hmm. on, on top of that, it's such a horror, because I think it brings back the horror to the Squid that we're missing. Yeah. Uh, and because it's such, when you first see all this pile of bodies and there's people who survived it, whose ears are bleeding, and there's mm-hmm. other people who are just uh, gone. Like, yeah. But, and they, they've like been knocked by it. There's people who smashed into stuff and it's like, mm. to see that, that, aftermath and it's like they weren't even on the island they weren't even in the same state (laughs) what happened but they're proximate yeah yeah (laughs) that's amazing like you can feel you feel it in in your soul and it's Mm. horrific as the camera like uh, as you said rahul as the camera goes over to herald Herald square and it's just just it's just i know it's such a good way to show that because the fear at the time was uh, one that audience wouldn't accept it, which is pr- probably true, especially of 2009, but also that it would be ridiculous having a squid. Mm. And one of the things I loved with this show is when they had this, the little squids raining, I uh, felt yeah. like they're, they're just not shying away from this. And yeah. that is the r- big payoff for that particular element of it. That's mm. what I mean. They went, they went all in like, and this is why like you, you can just, you only need the book and then this TV show and that's it. It's like, Anything else? And Petypedia, huh? And Petypedia, of course. But, <laughs> but Petypedia like... is is part of the TV show for me. Yeah, so. yeah. But like uh, carrying on what uh, Rahul's saying about like uh, some of the aesthetics and visuals. There's so much good stuff. I mean, you could, we could talk forever about episode six, but before mm. like with that stuff, like just stuff like uh, this minor stuff. So when you first meet uh, Laurie, um, and when she's <laughs> in her apartment, and she's got like the the, like the, the, the Andy art. Warhol painting. Yeah, yeah, the art yeah. behind it. And her head is where her head is in, in the photo. Just little stuff like that. It's just. And the owl. <laughs> yeah, it's just so good. Mm. Yeah. I love that stuff. And um, the, uh, like, the Dr. Manhattan um, phone booths as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All of that stuff. And um, how that pays off is really interesting as well. Yeah. Because it's like a phone call to nowhere. And it's just. Yeah false hope in a way um because she knows that he's not there but she leaves those phone booths in place anyway like there's another level of Hmm. sorry can continue for i was gonna say she's she's inherited some of her legacy because she has the same arrogance as adrian veidt in a lot of yeah and it's also data collection Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. she's actually just storing all these people's uh stories and jokes and Mm. awful moments uh, praying to a uh, a god who who for all intents and purposes doesn't exist in that world, mm. um, yeah. and if they do exist, they are inscrutable, like yeah. uh, and silent. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on that we kind of glanced off of earlier was like uh, the concept of nostalgia as a pill. Like you can bottle somebody's memories and they can use it to remind themselves of you know what they experienced in the past and like yeah. how it was outlawed because people were getting high off of their own memories or something like there's some They're getting high off each other's memories as well or high off each other's memories but then yeah. that's i felt like that there's so many little things in this show which add up to um like harms that are being placed on people or solutions being taken away from people because one mm. group of people ruins it for the people who may potentially benefit from it so like the fact that um a pill exists that could give Angela an insight into her history, but it's not given to people because uh, because some people were getting high off of it. 
Like it says something about the system in play, like the institution that has developed this drug, but then can't find the best uses for it and has to deny it from people because it, because of the worst things that people would do with it. Like I found, I, I feel like there's lots of little touchstones of that in the show. Yeah. Cause doesn't that then like sort of uh, lead to a thing of the difference between, it's like the dichotomy um, between say history and nostalgia and how, nostalgia is like a fantasy looking back and it's like literal like rose tinted glasses building up um the past into something that it wasn't but but that uh that if that you feel you're missing out on now because uh, other people are getting getting rights it feels like you're losing rights mm. and i think that what the show has is that as you as you were saying rahul certain people are not who could benefit extremely off, off access to this history, especially experienced in such a, a, a vivid way, um, could benefit so much, including the very people who's, who it was created for in the first place, who uh, may have uh, Alzheimer's or, or other uh, degenerative uh, diseases, could mm. benefit off this extremely. But because it, it was outlawed in this way, because it wasn't, I don't know, handled properly or uh, giving out properly... Now it means that this thing that could have been restorative is now lost to everyone. And in the place of that, or not even the place of it, alongside that and in place of that, instead, uh, vague nostalgia is uh, taken over certain people and leads them to the actions that they take throughout the show. It's a really interesting um, thing, this nostalgia drug. Um for me, it is a comment on the idea of genetic trauma, um, especially in the way it's used in the show. So you have Lady True, for example, using it to um, educate her daughter, who is actually her mother, but like the, the idea of her using it to educate her daughter about her struggle mm. um, and her mother's struggle. And then the idea See, I of... I didn't get it in that sense. I thought it was more to just literally recreate her mother. Mm. I didn't well, yes, see it but... as an informative, like, this is what we went through, yada, yada. It was a case of, you're my yeah. new mother. But well, I before think that, the mum that... reveal, that was my... I think that, I think both points still work because, like Rahul said earlier in, in regards to Adrian and Adrian putting the mask on the... Um, the uh, Gamekeeper. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and... By doing that, it's like this false hollow thing of like, you're going to become this character, but I'm going to stamp it on you. But meanwhile, people uh, have experienced real trauma and that's what's building their character. Mm-hmm. And Lady True is like the artificial version of that. But that trauma really did happen to her actual mum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is uh, like, it, it, I think it's emblematic emblematic of her character and of how her, her character's outlook is. Where yeah. instead she just sidestepped all this, and it's like I'm going to do it the right way by doing it the wrong way. <laughs> it's like genetic. Well, like, and I mean, the idea of genetic trauma as in like something that happens to parents becomes imprinted on DNA and passed down to children. Yeah. Mm. Um. So, and 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 this is like what's happening here, but it's like the 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 nostalgia drug is the passing it on kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah, and like. That's the thing, like, building off of that, like, that's uh, quite one of the bigger themes for me in the show, um, genetic trauma. Because, like, um, 
obviously it's articulated in episode five with, mm-hmm. with the guy who's at Looking Glasses um, thing who said he wasn't yeah. even born when when the squid dropped, but he still gets the nightmares and. Uh, but like, um, yeah, it, it runs throughout the show in different ways because obviously we've got all the stuff to do with uh, Angela's history and how certain things are almost like recurring. How they all want to be cops and mm-hmm. they all want to uh, like join the law and they all want to. They've all got this 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 anger. Um, they all they all put on a mask or put on a badge of some degree um and that but even to characters that like we we know and and like um uh, to a degree like john because they're like fleeing germany to a degree like laurie because of her parents um and how they got together and like all of that it does like tie into this this general theme of uh how these scars will pass on. And it kind of relates to, to what I was saying as well with the, the refutation thing, how mm. if I think if you don't try to heal those things to begin with, you will pass them down um, mm. on one degree. And then there's a secondary degree where it's like though society helps pass those things down and it's unavoidable. And I think the having that thing as a drug it is kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like a nuke in a way. It could serve so much good, but it's just applied like liberally that it doesn't end up serving its purpose at all, apart from in the show where, in a way, it sort of trains Angela um, to see time as Dr. Manhattan does. Mm. Mm. And I think part of the, the reason that... Um... Like uh, one of the reasons that is kind of like alluded to for um, them having uh, red fidations in the first place, as in that actually coming to pass, is the fact that the whole because of the uh, appearance of Doctor Manhattan, because people now view time in a post-Manhattan way, even though we experience time linearly still. Like the idea that's explored in some of the Peterpedia stuff is the fact that people like what the what they were saying like the argument for the red foundations was well you know these things are what if these things are happening at the same time as we're living kind of thing only right. that we we know that time isn't linear but we only experience it linearly but these events are still happening they just you know like if you look at things like dr manhattan looks at things it I removes guess. the distance yeah. of yeah said tragedy and yeah. stops it becoming this distant black and white photo in a book exactly oh, that's interesting i, I i'm regretting not having read PEPD. that's a really good concept yeah um yeah it's um there's some really cool stuff in there and um like to go back because leon was talking about like my favorite episode and i didn't get to say about the the the, the, just the way episode five opens with like looking glasses like uh little fear of lightning i think the episode's called isn't it Hmm. um with looking glasses uh origin story with the 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 funhouse mirrors and everything else and I just loved it I just thought it was so excellent and you know what my one criticism with this is the same like the criticism I've got like for this show in general but like my one criticism the one thing that I'm I'm a little bit mad about is the fact that this isn't a comic and the reason that is is because it's I'm not mad in a negative way it's it's the fact that it could have been 
um, on a whole other level and it would allow me to experience things because the one thing I get annoyed about sometimes when I'm watching a story like this on television is the fact that I can't consume it in my and digest it on my terms like I can with a comic like a comic I can go back easier I can look at events simultaneously I can be Doc Manhattan in that Mm. case and experience time the same way Doc Manhattan does and I would love to be able to do that with this tv show and see things get drawing (laughs) i mean i I can see your point but i'm so glad this is a tv show because i i i I, I love it in this format and also if it was a comic we wouldn't have got that amazing distorted careless whisper cover that happens well yeah we wouldn't have got life on mars the nine inch nails version (laughs) yeah it's time to talk about this soundtrack because we've we've avoided it for like an hour and a half now yeah yeah so yeah it's the whole point that if it was a comic i could have drunk it in and poured over it on my own terms but let's talk about the soundtrack now the fact that the soundtrack why did they just put it out under um resner and ross and not nine inch nails first of all like Uh, uh, well i've mentioned this off cast but that's how yeah following ghost one to four and um david fincher um convincing resner to do this the score that that's just how resner and ross have uh, name themselves when they do um, scores for film and TV. Mm. I know. I just feel like this this particular music is just so much like Nine Inch Nails that it, it, they, it is Nine Inch Nails but it is, in everything yeah. but name. Yeah, and it's their like, names. It made some That's of better my, for them. <laughs> yeah, it, it made some of my favorite scenes in like it, it, the, one of my favorite scenes in this whole TV show is. Uh, the bit where Looking Glass is sitting in the pod questioning the guy, which is the bit that Ray touched on with like, how would you feel if I took a shit on the American flag? All that stuff. I, I love that bit. I love mm. that scene in the pod, right? And I, the, the, the music in that part is just so like spot on. Like it's almost, it's basically like I'm listening to, um, it's almost closer by Nine Inch Nails actually. <laughs> and yeah, uh, is it, it is, yeah. Yeah. Is it Objects in Mirror? I think the I think tracks so, called Objects yeah, and Mirror yeah. are closer than they appear. And it's got that like, like thick bass. And and like little touches with this soundtrack, just like um tracks like None with a motherfucking gun. Yeah, I mean that, that didn't, track didn't is even... it's a superhero theme basically yeah. for, for Sister Knight. And it is so it's propulsive. Yeah. I was going to say, there's that scene where she's like suiting up yeah, and then yeah. you get the thing where she's like throwing a bag into the boot of her car and you get like what I thought was very comic booky like match cuts where yeah. like it's her outside her house and then she's slamming down the boot yeah. on the bridge. and Like the soundtrack during those moments is amazing. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of my favourite themes in the show um, is, I've got two. One is not including the Life on Mars cover, but like I really like what's the sort of the unofficial theme of the show, which is the one... That plays multiple times, but the, it plays during the squid reveal before that transitions into the the yeah. song. But like um, that one where the heavy synths, it's so John Carpenter. Uh, it's just everything about it is it's just so <laughs> atmospheric, but in this really sort of upside down, dark way. Some nice scenes of highways and stuff with that. Yeah. Which mm. is always nice. And then my other, sorry, my other favourite um, like theme in there is, that if they play it as a theme in an early episode, I can't remember the exact scene, but then 
the version that plays in the theatre scene with Angela and Will uh, in, the, in the last episode. Um, that's it's like a vocal harmonising track, that version of it. It's so good because it's almost manipulative because what they're saying is already quite emotional and how they're acting it is already quite emotional. But with that playing underneath it as well, it just, I don't know, it, it's, it's really good at cutting straight to your heart. Yeah. I really like um, Orphans of Krypton. Yeah. I think that's a great piece of music. And um, I actually like Trust in the Law, you know, the piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. That's fantastic. The silent movie music. Um, but the whole thing, the whole thing is is truly amazing, like amazing music. And um, on the subject of music, like another conversation that we've had off cast that I wanted to have on cast as well, because I think it's rather important that we have this conversation on cast. How the hell did... Adrian Veidt, get all those records on Europa. <laughs> the place was paradise. Yeah, John left them for him. Yeah, he but did, did he make them on the spot? Did he leave them for him, or did, did he have to ask for them again? Like, because he, when he teleports him, he just teleports him in the clothes on his back. He just says, "I've made a." He says, "I've." John says, "I've made a paradise," implying that it was John's paradise that John made Adam and Eve. And this is John's paradise because it was the, the like John's safe space. Well, John I, I, would have known all along that he was going to give it to Vite. Maybe, and also he transports that entire castle, so maybe it was just already in that castle. <laughs> and, and then also on top of that, like there's just so many things that you've got to assume <laughs> are there because there's so many things that Vite uh, uses. Uh, <laughs> yeah. hmm. That, like, you just got to assume a lot of that stuff's there. I mean, one, like, the food. They're making the Game Master's rifle. He didn't construct <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, but these might have all been things like, because this is a manor house, and everything there is kind of like, it's it's got that kind of, like, um, vintage feel to it, as in it's all manor housey stuff. It's all things that he would have found in the grounds or around the manor house, maybe. But how would he have made the the aging chamber? Oh, that's just that's just white science, man. But he did it using like <laughs> he did, weird. He did it in, he, it's in like if you look at it. Home. Yeah, well, if you look at the the aging chamber, it it looks like Doctor Frankenstein esque. Yeah, but I I feel like he's that... ma- he could have made that out of kitchen equipment. Yeah, you know? but I I feel that it I feel that it's a case where he has the tools that he needs to do it, but it's not like he's just got like a warehouse of like space age stuff. Because <laughs> like, I, I think part of it, like the reason why he makes the suit out of the armor and all that and constructs it is because it's Vite as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that, uh, not to say that he made it hard for himself on purpose, but I think that, like, I, I, I don't think it's a worry where the records came from, considering <laughs> what, what else is around. Suspension of disbelief I'm setting up. <laughs> well, yeah, suspe- obviously suspension of disbelief, but I thought it would be fun to have a, a theorising yeah, yeah. conversation no, but, about it. But that's when I think that that is... <laughs> I think it's explained without them explaining it. I don't even think yeah. that's a case of, like, no. um, leave your brain at the door, dude. I do think that it's a worthwhile <laughs> yeah. thing, but I just think that it is, it's explained without them explaining it. I'm surprised like, there's not a Peterpedia page about it. Mm, I know, yeah. I, I like the idea of, of him asking for them using dead bodies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, well, John. is Manhattan not kind of powerful enough for Vite just to say it out loud and he could hear it? I don't think I don't John, know. I don't think Dr. Manhattan gave him anything after that initial transportation. I think he's, <laughs> yeah. he's doing, he's doing his own, own thing. On the topic of the dead bodies that Vite is flinging into the atmosphere, I love the fact that, like, 
he's sending the message saying, save me. And you get a reveal at the end of that episode where it's like, save me daughter. And he goes to this extra effort to spell out a word that is longer or almost as long as save me on its own. Like he sacrifices an additional 2000 bodies or whatever it takes <laughs> to spell out the word daughter just so he can like appeal to Lady True's sensibilities. And then she gets to throw it in his face. The callousness to kill an additional 2000 people like for that, yeah. I, I just think such a great little touch. It's just like the yeah, fact again, that he's, he's just like to kill three million people. But he's like York, fishing so. them out of the lake, like you would fish for lobsters. <laughs> like, yeah, life, <laughs> life is cheap to him. Yeah, cause it's funny when you compare the two. So, like Doctor Manhattan, everything's done in a sort of celestial, heavenly way, where they walk out of the water naked towards the mansion, and it, and it's like they are his creations. He went and created life, like he said he was, and it's like live lives, my people, and then they ended up in turn worshipping him. And it's just like, oh man, this is boring. Whereas like agents just like, woohoo, slaves. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, is, it not, is it not the serpent in the Garden of Eden when Adrian Veidt turns up? I guess like, he's corrupting the... it. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't I guess, think the yeah. snake was reveling in being served by Adam and Eve though. Like... <laughs> <laughs> and he gets bored himself. Yeah, and then he has to create his own like GTA antagonist. <laughs> <laughs> On the topic of Vite, actually, I made a goof when I was first watching this the other week, well, all the way through the other week, that is. I didn't know there was nine episodes. So I watched episode eight and I was like, oh, what a, what an obtuse ending with like, you know, the post credit scene with Vite in the cell and he finds the <laughs> horseshoe. And then I, I was, I, I accepted it. And then I was like, I can't remember how I realized it was a ninth episode. But either way, I was like, oh, shit, thank God there's another one. But I would have been content with that ending. But, it, it, like, the show. No, that that's I not mean, an ending. No, but, I mean, at the time, I, I knew no better. So I was like, whoa, what a what a weird ending. I guess I guess that's it. Obviously, there's a lot more that it, it builds upon, but I, I believed it. You know what? I can kind of, I can sympathize with that. I'm not going to mock you for it, because I'm sure I've done a similar thing before where, like, you just ex- <laughs> if you know that there's nine episodes, or you know to expect a more um, direct ending, then mm. like you think, oh, I'm going to give it the weight of this abstract, artistic, you know, cuts off in the middle of the film kind of, uh, uh, you know, pop fictiony sort of story. Um, but yeah, I don't know how you would have been satisfied with that. I well, been- it was more. I-, I thought it was a case of this is like the, the bleakest ending possible. You know, Manhattan's <laughs> dead. There's no hope left. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yet the person who gets the kind of the cake is literally Vite, and he's the one who gets the happy ending by. I can see why you would think that because it's like you, it's the first and only post credit scene in the entire yeah. show. So I could understand why you might think that's like the punctuation to the whole story. <laughs> I, I guess if, if you at the time weren't expect so if at the time you didn't know this was a limited series and you thought there could be a season two, I could understand that. Well, I didn't think there was going to be... I, I at no point thought there was a season two, but I thought there was only eight episodes. Because in that case, like, isn't the last thing in the actual timeline, it's um, Manhattan being sucked into the thing and then Angela screaming? Is, is that the last thing we see of, of them? No, no. Uh, you see him... Oh, sorry, Yes. I'm sure it does end abruptly, but I thought that was the whole point, this bleak ending. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> you, you you took Lady True at her word. 
when you're just like, what does the clock do? It tells the time. Okay, cool. <laughs> she built a cool <laughs> clock. <laughs> Sad about See, I... Dr. Manhattan, though. I knew she was going to do something weird, like try and make another Dr. Manhattan or, or something like that. Like I had that in my head already. But what I didn't know was that Senator Keane was going to get down to his Manhattan pants yeah. and then get turned into red slime, because that was amazing. <laughs> Shall we address like the whole thing about John being Cal, being Dr. Manhattan? Because like, we've, we've tiptoed around it, and it's a testament to the show that there's so much to talk about that we can skirt around the edges of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But what what thoughts do you guys have on like the concept of Doctor Manhattan coming back to Earth and then needing to find another like shell to live in, and as a way to like not be noticed? And he chooses, you know, like he falls in love with Angela in whatever timeline he experiences that, and then chooses the body of a black man. To I think it's perfect. I think it's the the perfect for him as a cat. I think it's the best. Manhattan thing. But also a key thing, because I remember thinking about this after watching the show the first time and like, you know, doing my appraisal and thinking about what worked and what didn't work. And it did strike me as weird that this dude, I, I get he spent more time being a non human blue person, but it still feels kind of weird, like, oh, is, is John doing blackface, whatever? But then I think a key important element of all of that, especially the scene, is that. At the beginning, he's presented with three bodies, uh, and it's like uh, a likely Viet- Vietnamese a man who had died, a white man who had died. Uh, I can't remember the other body, and like he's presented those, and then Angela, he says, "Which one would you be more comfortable with?" And then that's when she brings out the fourth body, which is a black man, and it's, and and I think it works on different, on multiple levels. It works one because it's her, it's her choice, and. Uh, it kind of connects her with, especially with them saying we're going to move back to Tulsa and stuff, which she knows her from meeting her uh, grandma for one day. Um, like it's it's her sort of way to sort of it's not her, her way to reconnect, but it's, it makes sense that that would be the body that would be the most comfortable, and mm-hmm. it, I think it's less problematic or whatever because that she's making that choice. Because in, mm-hmm. in essence, you could read that as a rebirth of a person and not uh, John pretending to be a black dude. Because especially um, as part of that, later on, uh, he has to lose his memory as well, which I think makes that element a bit more perfect. But then it kind of also still, whether intentionally or unintentionally, does tie into the thing of like, uh, like trauma. Because there is a thing where just by being America and him being a black guy and being in Oklahoma, it's still, a, if, in a way, it's going to be like a... Um, it's not easy. <laughs> like, it'd be easier if he picked the uh, the white guy, for instance. Yeah. But I think it, it works with Angela doing the decision because, one, it's uh, her picking someone that she's more comfortable with. But I also think there is a, a hard to explain, but a... I don't know. I think there's a healing that comes with her wanting to be with like a black guy. With mm. and I think it sort of changes the meaning a bit. If, for instance, she got with a white guy or a Vietnamese guy. Mm. I mean, the reason I asked the question in that way was because I remember having a conversation with you at the time this came out, and I didn't really see the um, 
the potential problematic nature of of that and like we had that conversation about it but i i remember the reason i or i wanted to talk about it was because they they make a big deal in this show in general about like what does it mean what does identity mean and what does it mean to put on a mask and like why um why won't the police take off their masks while they're inside the precinct for example and the answer is like the concealment of identity is critical to our safety and it's it's an interesting point to make that there's a man who can be impervious to all harms who then has to lose his memory to be with this woman that he loves choosing the body of a of somebody who is more vulnerable to harm mm. than another body might be and i thought there was an, there's an interesting like tying in of all these other themes of identity in that yeah 100%. no i i, yeah. I could yeah i can definitely see that I think that is a, a good read. Um, and also think that, uh, I think on, on different levels, there's there's a lot of cool things to do with like the um, sort of the flipping of a visual, uh, for instance. So the first superhero was, was a black dude. And, uh, and uh, also we find out that the most powerful actual superhero is also a black dude in the show. But then a key thing that's interesting is that at the end of episode well during episode eight and in episode nine when he comes back as manhattan he 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 doesn't just have his john manhattan face he mm. still has cal in there and yeah part of that obviously one of that is part of that is because they wanted to have um emotional connection uh, yeah um they wanted to have yaya's um him acting it because mm. he's been acting manhattan as well and it's yeah like you said the the it's, you have emotional response with someone if you can see their face. And obviously before that point, we don't yeah. see his face. But I think also the, the, what you say to do with identity ties into that as well. Because I think it isn't just a, oh, I'm discombobulated because of the, the tachyons. Uh, I'm Manhattan, but uh, I've got <laughs> Cal's face, but I'm blue. I think it is meant to tie into, especially his last lines where he's like, um, I'm in all of the moments we were together at the same time. Mm. I think that, he has become Cal. Like, uh, Cal, because it was Cal Jelani, I believe, was the corpse, but he's Cal Abar, and him spending 10 years in that tunnel, him coming out, he's not just John still. I think he's now, he's like a fusion, maybe, of the identity that he had as John, Mm -hmm. but also the the identity that he he has as uh, as Cal and his time spent with... Because he's got the memory... He's got the memory of the 10 years once the thing's taken yeah, out, but he just yeah. couldn't see it. So I think that that experience, that lived experience, has now fused these two versions. And that's why um, him now having a, uh, like that face with those features, which is like very black features as well, under the blue, it's, it, it works. It's like residual self-image from the Matrix. Yeah. yeah. And his has his changed because of his time with Angela, yeah. Mm. And the fact he didn't want to die alone breaks my heart. Yes, yeah, it's rough it's, uh... because in a way, because he's Dr. Manhattan and Manhattan's a slave to determinism uh, to the level where he just won't do any, he, he just, he, he's the most powerful man, most powerful person, entity or whatever in the galaxy, but he still has to follow a script. Mm, yeah, because he's, yeah. he's experiencing it all at the same time. Kind of robs him of, of a lot of power in that way. That's, it almost that's like he loses his Manhattan. free will because of mm. it. Yeah. But my one thing with Manhattan is if he knows the script, why does he still feel like he has to follow it? Because he knows what's going to happen. Can't he just like tweet? He's not following it. it though. 
because he's, he's experienced yeah. in it at the same time. He I can't suppose, change yeah. something that's already. But happening. but I would argue uh, in favor of what Greg's saying that I think that he does that because he is live because he's living at the same time. He is doing all that stuff, but that makes him. That makes him th- this passive character who did all the stuff because he was told. Like he, um, yeah, he became a scientist for whatever reason. He became a watch uh, watchmaker for whatever reason. Um, he uh, fought in the Vietnam War because Nixon asked him to. It's like mm. he, he just follows this path, and he, and you can you can say no, you know. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's he, like yeah, that's what, what he, I feel like saying to him. Like he takes his hand off the steering wheel because he yeah. knows he's not driving, and it's it's kind of. Um, it, that's what stops him from doing truly great stuff, as as yeah. Will says. Like mm. he could have done, he could have done more. And it's like well, he didn't push himself to do more because he 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 was living it all at the same time. But yeah. I would argue that determinism can break down because of free will, and yeah. that if you truly, it's like a religion if you're stuck in it. And I think yeah. that especially such a person who rebuilt himself. Wild uh, to think that he could see this entire series at the end of Watchmen. <laughs> sorry i was gonna say that ties into the what i said at the start about it being like one of the the ultimate theses of the show is like what what could somebody else with a different viewpoint with different experiences um and a different mode of thought what could they do with the power afforded to him like and the hope is that someone like Angela would be able to break free, take, keep her hands on the wheel and like steer it into like steer humanity into a different, uh, a different outcome that he was, mm. he was ultimately super passive about. And she's yeah. driven and active and like fighting against all the forces pressed upon her. Uh, yeah. And there's also a key line that happens in episode eight, where when he's doing all the stuff with the eggs and, and walking on the pool, he mm. says to her, "I need you to see, to see, see this. Yeah, I need you to see this." Yeah. And I think that relates to obviously that with the eggs and also the pool. But I think it also relates to the fact that she, at that point, she's gone through the nostalgia thing. She's basically time traveled in a way because she's she got her her grandfather involved in all the on all the stuff through um, uh, a time traveling telephone that is uh, Doctor Manhattan, um, and I think that line also uh, works with him as well. Like she spent the time with him. She knows his history. He's the reason her parents are dead pretty much. Uh, it's like, I need you to see me. It's like, so he's gone for it. He's, he's spent that time with her and she's spent this time with him, gone through all of this stuff so that when she's uh, imbued of his powers at, at the end, uh, there's a hope that she has now going to use gonna use everything that's uh like the sum of her parts that's got her to where she is now and she's gonna that's going in to inform how she uses it. it it's the responsibility that comes with the great power mm. Mm. and do you think like because that made me what you just said made me think of um manhattan like sort of taking being passive and taking his hands off the steering wheel do you think that is his like 10-year game plan for how to uh overcome that passivity to to actually like break free of determinism put his hands back on the wheel steer it in a direction pass it on to her before diving out of the car like i feel like maybe that's maybe it's saying something there about his method of breaking free of his cage yeah i i I definitely think so because i mean him doing that like having that whole thing of like 
uh, taking the thing that Adrian's given him is that that like that is a sacrifice because that is a loss of agency to a degree. Mm. But like you said, all it is really is um, it's like um, when like badass fighters or whatever put on a blindfold and then they're better than they were before. <laughs> it's kind of like his version of that. It's like uh, I, I guess. You, it's tied to also a thing of and people's having like faith or whatever. And it's like not seeing what's what your eyes can see, but going off what you feel or believe. And I think his version of that is, as you say, it's to, it, it, the thing that's shackling him is the uh, omniscience and the omnipresence. If he removes that and lives as a, lives as a human, then like, yeah, he, he, even though he won't in at the time know it, he he gets that, gets the power back as you're saying. So I think, yeah, that's definitely a uh, on-the-money point. I actually don't think he's dead either because the fact that he knows what Angela's going to do by him showing the stuff with the pool, obviously know, he knows what she's going to do. So he can't Does he, it. though? Or is he well, not yeah, giving I, her I, the I, tools? Is that but, faith or is it... But the... he know. Well, I guess... On the, but would Dr. Manhattan have any faith? Because I don't think he's the well faith in a faith in someone that he loves. I guess so. Now he's had those ten years of being a human, perhaps. But hmm. I mean, I, I like the point. I think it could be both. Because like, mm. he's a man who's put himself together before. Why couldn't he again? But like, I like that it's open ended and it may be answered in a season. Oh, yeah, sure. is one. Like, it's that's a cool question. I think it is, and I, I hope that he's dead. But I think it's it, it <laughs> is it is a cool. Um, thing to consider i mean it's more worthwhile that he's dead because if he's not it's kind of like well was that all for nothing yeah mm. and i'm i hate when i hate that i hate an all for nothing mind you as drug episodes go uh this is definitely better than the the one in westworld <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah man the whiplash of that <laughs> having seen this like the months before of westworld. see I, I i was the opposite way around so... When they introduced that, it was such a letdown. Yeah. Not, not that I want to get too deep into the Westworld dialogue. No, like, no, no. That, just... that, that drug has so had so much potential to be amazing. Like, yeah. what was it? Genre? Like, yeah, film genres. Oh that my could have carried the show. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've never yeah, seen but... Westworld, and I think I, I feel like I need to now. Yeah, it's a good show. Yeah, I, I would overall recommend Westworld. Um, to, what was I going to say about? Uh, the drug episode yeah so the nostalgia episode um i like uh, these are just like little moments that i noticed but i like how in american horror not american american hero story um i think they essentially show that same thing the scene where hooded justice saves that yeah but it's like backwards yeah it's the wrong way right it's very Zack snydery it's mm. um, um yeah as you say it's backwards and like <laughs> one thing i noticed was how he went in there to save the like the store from a violent robber and they were like, the robbers were asking the shopkeeper for like, give us, give us everything in your safe. And he's like, we don't even have a safe. And at the end of that scene in the TV show, in the TV show, you see there's a safe under his desk. <laughs> and like, it's, it's, I just thought that was really irritating. Cause like, clearly he's just an asshole who doesn't want to give up his possessions. But the reality of that is so much darker. Cause it's that whole bit where Reeves is on the warpath and goes into the meat factory to, and this is going to sound like nonsense if somebody drops into the conversation right now, but he goes in to the meat store to break up the, uh, the, the mesmerism construction plant that the clan yeah. are, 
are creating. And then that feeds into the grocery store that Fred owns. And like that whole, just that whole like, and also that that episode is, or the, the parts of it that are in the nostalgia trip is all shot to look like one shot, right? Um, and, or at least in, in big chunks of it. It's, it's yeah, got, big chunks, yeah. And I like how, I, I thought maybe there was a couple of like Birdman references. There's a bit where, um, where like the camera tilts up to look at the tops of some buildings and then it, it transitions from night to day or day to night or something. Yeah. A very similar shot like that in Birdman. Um, the, I thought maybe like, that was a shout out. Yes, and yeah, and, and even like the, the percussive uh, like soundtracks yeah. cho- uh, choices as well. Mm. Which I thought was a nice choice because I like Birdman. And that was, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I thought that <laughs> I thought that stuff was done really cool because uh, I, I just there's something about it. I don't know why, but just the thing of the police station doors. Uh, mm. but it's it's not that oh cool they did a transition using the police station doors. It's the fact that he goes in, has the whole scene, and then walks out, and they're still using it in the same magical realist way. I thought like oh that's yeah. really cool. It just opens out onto the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. But yeah, going back to that point about the shop as well. One thing that uh, I love with that is that you know, yeah, it's backwards because in in the thing he jumps in, smashes in there. But it's also mm. like um, it's it's shot in that Zack Snyder way. It's like hyper violent for no reason, and <laughs> the, the the bit of the is it the cash register? He's yeah. smashing it on the head, <laughs> and then. The thing I really love the contrast of that, that's this is like this fake reality and blah, blah. And then mm. when we see the actual thing, the way Hooded Justice fights from his first fight to like that fight and others, it's way more scrappy and messy and human. And it's like he's like uh, having to get up and take hits and stuff. And in that sequence, like you said, it's not a heroic, it's an escape because he's getting shot at. And it's like, I love the way that you kind of have that that thing of like, it's like the laundering of lies in a way, because it's mm. like cr- creating like this false, uh, hyperdramatic, badass version of a history that that didn't didn't truly happen, and sort of just whitewashes over um, the the raw truth of it. Which, um, but the hyper violence was uh, it wasn't showy. Instead, it was uh, uh, structural and um, uh, and institutionalized violence. And that's what makes it like just incredibly more scary. Mm. Uh, shall we start wrapping up? Um, yeah, I was uh, thinking. I uh, thinking it's about time to wrap up. <laughs> I was just wondering how we could do that. Like, I, I'm I'm trying to scan for like final points that I want to make because I I've talked about the things about identity and disguise and um. I don't know. Does anyone else have like final thoughts they want to give or overarching things? So overall, um, just to wrap up, to sort of like bring this into a close and tie it in a nice little neat bow. um, I think that this is like overarching from all of the Watchmen series. So this is like from start to finish, from everything Watchmen that we've talked about, I think the only things you truly need um, are the original 12 uh chapters and if you want anything additional to that um as in like if you if you need a continuation of that then you need this show as well the only two things you really need are this show and those 12 chapters um my overall takeaway of this is i really enjoyed this show i do wish it was a comic because then i could enjoy it on my own terms like i said before but that's just me and how i like to consume media um and 
I think it is, and I think this was an. I think this is an excellent way to end Watchmen, and I think this should be the end of Watchmen. I don't want any more. I don't want them to make any more. I think I like that this is the the end and the culmination of everything. Thing is, people said the same thing when the comic ended, and then look where we are now. Got a great show off the back of this. Mm. So yeah, I feel knows? like nothing needs to be sacred. Like if you can put some genuine effort into finding yeah. a renewed way of like reutilizing that old iconography or like the the template of you know how Watchmen was as we alluded to at the start uh, you know the original Watchmen was about the Cold War anxiety and this is more about uh, modern racial anxiety like maybe in another 20 30 40 years there'll be a new thing that we could then put into this framework and also have the same generational shift mm. where yeah I mean, I'd like to think there's not um, I mean, who knows? Also, like... I think I think what I'm what I'm actually saying is don't what I'm actually saying is that I I don't want any more now. Like mm. in this generation, like maybe in thirty years' time, if I wake up in thirty years' time and they're doing another Watchmen 4D hologram show or something that's like um, that that follows on from this but deals with something entirely different that we've lived through in the past thirty years, then sure. Hmm. You know, but I I would prefer as well um, that people just rip off a lot of the stuff that was in this and and, and apply it to like new new things, mm, yeah. Um, particularly stuff in front of the camera, but also stuff like behind the camera because like this show is notable because it handles all these like tricky themes to do with race and white supremacy and policing, but uh, um. A lot of the reason why that works is because Damon Lindelof filled his writer's room and, and made it a, a very representative one. So he has like multiple uh, like black people and people of colour on staff. Um, one of the writers, I think, Crystal Henry, um, she is obviously, she's like a black woman, but she was also a cop as well before she was a writer. Oh, that's really interesting. So I, I think that by filling the room and then... Um, from what it sounds like from all the different writers that you had, like uh, Jensen and Cord Jefferson, it sounded like um, the writer's room is an open place for people to like speak and discuss a lot of these things. And I think what happens is that you can miss out on a lot of this stuff or you can, you could, there's, there's bad versions of this show, like really bad. They tried it and they failed. This is, this is actually offensive or just badly handled. And I think that, by having multiple people who um, have lived, uh, it's like lived experience for them. Um, and the fact that like episode six, which deals with this stuff the most is co-written by Cord Jefferson, who's, who's a, bla- a black writer um, and is uh, directed by Stephen Williams, who's a black director who worked with Lindelof on like the leftovers and lost. Like, I think you can feel elements of that and obviously story editors and stuff. Like I think that, that would be a good thing where whatever the story is about, it, it would. I think it's more successful if you um, you you, you, you get the you right pa- people. Yeah, you get the right people in, but not just in like in front of the camera, but you get them in yeah, in yeah. all the departments. Um, little things that I just want to mention that I didn't get to bring up before. I really want to watch Sister Night. I know it's not a real film, <laughs> but I really want to watch it. <laughs> Got to make it. I so wish I could get a hold of that video. Apparently, the the um, the art for Sister Night VHS is based on a poster for an existing film called Velvet Smooth, <laughs> um, which I've just found now while you guys were talking, and oh, I've just put a link cool. to it uh, if you want to check that out. It's in it's a Reddit a Reddit link that I found. Um, 
there was one other thing I wanted to mention regarding the soundtrack that I forgot to bring up before that I'm going to bring up now. And that is the fact that one of the tracks is called Gary Owen. Yeah. Um, and I thought that that was like a, a, a nice little kind of sinister touch. Um, the fact that they called the rallying cry of the, 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 the cavalry Gary Owen, as in Gary Owen, the tune that, um, like Custer's men used to march to like the seventh cavalry used to march to a Gary Owen, which is an Irish marching tune that they used in the civil war and such, which, um, was a nice little sinister touch. And this whole thing of using, um, like this whole thing of, of, of white supremacists and whatever in America and, and, and racists using civil war iconography and things like that. There was one thing that I didn't understand um, that I wonder if you guys can shed light on, but like, what was the deal with the panda? Like it doesn't turn up very often, but he's there as like the guy setting the rules and giving access to guns in the first episode. Like um, his origin story is that he was a football mascot that never washed. Is that Ever. all there is to it? I thought <laughs> No, no, that's, some... that's not true. I'm just making that up. But... I believed you. I'm not going to lie. I believed you there. <laughs> I 100% believed you. Yeah. That dirty no, old ratty panda they... costume. Yeah, I wonder if there was more to it. Because like, there's a couple of references to pandas and there's other animal iconography throughout the show. Mm. Like with Lady True and the elephants and like elephants never forget and she made nostalgia, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, but like with pandas, there's a bit at the start in episode five where Wade is talking to like the top knots and yeah. yes, oh, what's the deal with the pandas on your pamphlet? And like, I don't know. I thought maybe I'm just missing something and I haven't dealt with God's creatures. Yeah. Oh, no, I think you're onto something there. I think maybe you are maybe... missing and then. It's yeah. But I wonder if that's it. <laughs> like there's two, there's two or three references to pandas and then there's nothing else. I thought maybe you guys might have yeah, picked up on something. That's the difficult thing of this show because some of it is like, oh man, like this, the way they've tied this theme to this theme and mm-hmm. blah, blah, and like what this all means and how that's ties in with the eggs. And another thing is like, I wonder if they called him <laughs> called him this just so they could have uh, that silly pun. Like, I wonder if they called him Cal Abar or her Angela Abar just so they could call episode eight yeah. uh, a man walks into Abar. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Th- there's like Lindelofi type stuff in there that mm. has you has you wondering like what is just a silly thing and what mm. is actually like super deep. But I think the genius of it is that the lines blur quite a lot on all this stuff. Mm. And it's the same kind of thing that I loved about the leftovers, where it's like. Uh, everything is sort of holistic and is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think with this, with Watchmen, like it, it doesn't annoy me. Like the panda thing doesn't it doesn't keep me up at night. I'm just wondering if <laughs> I don't want to feel I don't want to have missed something. I want I want to make the allegorical connection between this and that. And I feel like I've understood a lot of everything else, or I found meaning in everything else. But this one thing, this guy in a dirty panda hood, just doesn't it doesn't give he hasn't given me anything. And this show has given me so much. It needs to give me a little bit more. I think I think he's just there as like you know because he's like a desk jockey and everyone thinks he's kind of a loser and doesn't like him because he's a real like rules lawyer because he's constantly got that book and he's constantly quoting the rules and whatever and and like even even at the beginning of the even at the beginning of the thing like no one wants him to be on the thing when they want the weapons released because he does everything totally by the book maybe in this world he's an endangered species because he's trying to follow this particular like set yeah. of rules and uh, if things had gone as they're meant to in the big plan uh, Keane was either meant to be president and then he found out about Manhattan so he was going to be a blue one so yeah. like maybe um, 
he's like uh, pandas, like the representation of the old guard, and like what the Possibly, new wave yeah. that's going to wash them all away. And they're black and white. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I, I, I like this. Oh, that's, yeah, that, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm satisfied. Go. I can sleep now. I lied yeah. earlier. It was keeping me up. Anyway. <laughs> has that has that sated your curiosity? It has. That's great. I love it. Thanks. Ha, has that sated your curiosity to the point that we can end the podcast? Uh, I've got just some things that I'll run through, and then then yeah. I'm done. Yep. I'm go ahead. not sure if Rahul has any any more. No, no, no. Uh, say say your bit. Uh, I, I, I want to go over a few things. So, like. Um, I've missed out like some possible negatives that I have with the show. And one of my big negatives is I remember when I watched the show the first time and after, especially the run of episodes we get in before episode nine, uh, it felt good. And I think it felt better because, um, cause I really love that theater scene. But I mean, before that theater scene, it felt like it, it felt really weird because they've set so much stuff up and they've got to finish it in that episode. There's bits where it's like, man, Angela has no agency in this episode until the end. Like she's just sitting around like all episode. And I remember being like feeling out of sorts a bit because it's like until they're trapped, until uh, Manhattan teleports them to Karnak, what is the point of uh, Looking Glass being undercover and being gone for multiple episodes? I thought like, where obviously he's going to be undercover because he took one of the masks, but what is the point? And the point is just to get him in the room and that happens so that we can have the point where he, he's the one who after he sees the conspiracy, like, cause he watched the video and he's like, Oh, it, it is real. And then he's to be, he's the one who gets to help um, Laurie actually get justice for, with Ozymandias. <clears throat> but like, I remember thinking like, this just feels like disjointed in some ways. Like it, it uh, we're told that the squid are going to like wipe out the area. Uh, but then Angela's able to run with just the stupid thing, survive. Two, the area looks kind of fine. It's just a few dented cars. Three, Pirate Jenny and Red Scare are fine. I thought they'd mm. be massacred. Like, Lady Lady True, <laughs> it put a whole circle in her hand. So it's like, there, there's elements like that that kind of deflated me as I got to the end. But then... Um, but the, the was that when you on a second watch, though? No, first watch. Ah, okay. Because on a second watch, because I, I, I just didn't mind as much. I still think that it's a bit. The, I still think that the the flow is a bit, a little bit off. Like I don't think nine is as strong as eight and seven and blah blah. But it, it, I, it is. It, I guess I was not um, blindsided by it this time, and and expecting it. Know that the theater scenes coming up, I'm fine with it. But there's other bits that just like. Because to do with that, I, I kind of hated the fact that it was True who reads out Will's message to the Seventh Cavalry, and then uh, Judd's wife is just like, "Just kill us already, or whatever." And she says, "Yeah, of course I'm going to kill you." Kind of hate that. I kind of hate that because it's like, "Yeah, okay, cool, obliterated." And it's like, uh, like if I anything. Like that- Sorry, I was going to say I like that everyone else is freaking out around her though. She's like, "What the fuck? We yeah, decided yeah. for this." Yeah. But Sorry, like, yeah, you. like I. I that that I don't know, kind of like anticlimactic uh, mm. in a way, but then I think that may be tied to a blindsiding because going into that, um, I was like Seventh Cavalry are one of the main big bands, and then this like does a Watchman on you. And it's like, eh, not really. Um, uh, but then I think it leads to my main issue with the show, and that's Lady True, who I think I think she is deserved. Through the show, I think she's really cool, 
And I think that uh, Hong Chao plays her amazingly. And I think she's the badass character when she shows up at the clocks and she she's <laughs> she hears the knock at the door and she's like, not yet. <laughs> and she's talking to them and it's like, you've got to sign the thing. And it's like, tick-tock, tick-tock. Like, all of that stuff's really cool. And just the way um, she, like, speaks of everybody. I just love how sort of badass and arrogant she he- she is. I love the uh, the conversation that she has with Angela uh, right before Angela goes, because she's 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 like, I know you're living with Doctor Manhattan. Like you never asked me <laughs> who he was. Like I love all of that stuff, and it's just like, uh, don't uh, and don't say you're going to save the fucking world or whatever. And it's like, I'm sorry, Angela, <laughs> I'm saving the fucking world. So I like, got I, big White Rose vibes from her as well, because she runs every, from Mister Robot. Yeah, she runs yeah, everything yeah. on a clock. She's clinical. She's direct. Yeah, but like I think what's lost with her is that we're never really given a compelling reason why her becoming a Manhattan, apart from her killing Manhattan to do it, we're never given a compelling reason to do so. All we get is a montage where her dad, who is defeating her as he's doing it, is saying, yeah, she's like me, where narcissist takes one to no one, but in Latin. And Mm. it's like, uh, it's kind of lame because thinking about her history, we only get that really in the episode where her, her mum injects herself with uh, Adrian fluid, and um, and then she finds Adrian's thing, and she's like, "I'm I'm 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 your daughter," blah blah blah. And he's like, "Screw it, make it on your own." We don't really get her, and it's kind of a waste considering she's Vietnamese. Uh, Vietnam is colonized and made the fifty-first state of America, and one of those solid points is the fact that anti-colonialists. Uh, attack the embassy or whatever, which leads to Angela's parents dying. So it feels like the show is, because it's preoccupied with dealing with a lot of other stuff like white supremacy and like trauma, legacy and all that. It kind of, I think it misses out on actually one, given La- uh, Lady True a proper character uh, and for, for us to, for ourselves to truly see why she would be such an awful narcissist god because she only wants people to kneel down to her. I mean, we get sprinklings of that, but we don't get enough of her to make it feel uh, a, a, a cool sight when she's standing in the thing about to get the powers. Like, it's it doesn't like feel... She... Yeah. No, no, go on, say what you're going to say. I was going to say, she goes full, like, she almost just wants people to watch her become a god and that's it. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I need my parents around me and all that. But, yeah. like, we, I, I think they they just miss a trick with her with that and I think related but separate they miss a trick when talking about uh colonialism of how America just got a big blue guy to to uh, blow up the country and then they took over it and the trauma that that would have to any everybody related to it including her mum uh and and including her I think that I think that's where they uh, it's like a sacrifice they made to do the rest of the show or it was it was um, a uh, I don't think it was in a blind spot. I just think it's something that they decided wasn't a focus. Mm. But I think it was a missed opportunity. But otherwise, um, yeah. Otherwise, I think that everything works out well, and I like the uh, the ending more so, like the last episode more so on the second watch. But I do feel that Lady True is a bit underserved. Yeah, mm. I think I agree with that. Um. Has that is that is that wrapping us up? Oh, I have, I have one more point I want to make very quick. Um, when Angela picks up all the eggs at the end and she finds the one egg, and then she remembers that uh, John told her, oh, sorry, Cal told her to go out onto the pool and like test her powers that way. She cracks the egg while she's outside near the pool. Oh, so risky. 
I know. Oh, I was no, thinking, no, like, yeah. imagine, imagine if she dropped in and had to suck it up from the ground. Do you know what, like, do you know what I thought she was going to do? I know. <laughs> do you know what I thought she was going to do? I thought she was just going to crack it and just chuck it on the ground and leave it and walk away. Like, no. she didn't want the powers. I thought that's what it was going to nah. end on. She, she, she was a mask. She was a superhero. <laughs> she wasn't going to give that up. But yeah, why didn't she put it in a bowl? Like, I just... <laughs> Because she's cool. She, she knew why didn't she, she put it do. in a pan and cook it? Yeah, you make an omelette. She yeah, why didn't she enjoy the egg? Why didn't she just have a fried egg sandwich? You know, yeah, and like one last thing to remember him by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She knew what she was doing. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't that... have eaten a raw egg. <laughs> Been there. I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have cooked it. I'd have, I'd yeah, have made but, it. I'd have... But maybe it's like making like brownies of a certain sort with a certain ingredient where. <laughs> Uh, it, cooking them at a certain temperature, you'll not get the intended thing. So maybe she was scared of introducing it to anything else that You're would have ruined the it. Yeah, I think that's pretty smart, actually. <laughs> but what if it, it is work. like the brownies with a certain thing and a certain thing, and you have to cook it? To... No, that, that's on Manhattan, <laughs> then, if that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> that's on Manhattan. <laughs> You're going to cook uh, the Manhattan out of it when the, when the edibles kick in. And she actually gets the Manhattan powers. She's like the, the what they don't show you is that when she does try to walk on the water at the end there, she just falls straight in and she's like, This is bullshit. And then later on she's just sitting watching TV and then she starts to turn blue. Like <laughs> Yeah, I like the idea that you like fine, she's got the powers, but you still have to practice to walk on water. Like it doesn't come naturally. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now yeah. I'm done. Uh, I, I, now I've, we're got, done. I've I've got one more sort of thing to hit and then I'm done, done, done. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and these are these aren't really conversational things, just like cool things that I, I thought of. Mm. Um, but like one, I really love how the so the letter that is dropped during World War One, which is the Germans uh, trying to use uh, the truth, which is that uh, Americans are racist against black uh, American soldiers. I really love that 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 letter then also becomes a legacy thing and mm-hmm. how like watch over this child is put on it. But then I love how during the nostalgia episode, you get an awesome bit where they're reading the note, which was written by that German official, um, obviously like dictated. And then the secretary who could speak English is typing it up. And I love how during that sequence, we get five people over two generations of the same family, including uh, the child and elderly will mm-hmm. all reading it. And it's all done in like, it, it like goes from person to person during the reading of it. I thought that mm. was like that that was just an awesome touch because it it says everything about the show, but it's also just done in a really yeah. like cool, succinct moment. That was something I didn't even pick up on the first time I watched it because it's so deft, like yeah. it happens so like naturally and visibly. Um, but yeah, that's that's something to pick up on the next. Time I love you watch it. I love that they they highlight the significance of those flyers because those flyers were a real thing. Yeah, yeah, and, and they continued um, as well. Yeah, and they they highlight yeah they highlight the significance of those flyers and how they influenced black soldiers so that when they got back from um the when they when they came back to America from World War One that kind of kickstarted them to get angry about this stuff. Yeah, because like yeah. Um, the film Mudbound, which I believe is based on a novel, that touches with similar things that to do with World War Two. It's about a mm. um, black soldier who returns home to his family who live in the South, who are like doing, uh, who are sharecroppers for like a racist white family. And like part of that is that uh, him in speaking about it, he says that when they were, he were, he fought in France. And he says like, uh, when we were in France, we were liberators. Like 
I was treated like a human. I was treated like a hero. And like uh, while he was out there, we see flashes of him like hooking yeah. up and, and falling in love with mm-hmm. like a, a French a white French woman. And it's like, um, and then it's juxtaposed of him coming back and being called like the N word and stuff while while home while walking into shops locally and fearing he might get shot or something like that by racist mobs because that movie set like in 46 or something um or like the the late 40s and it's um it's the same type of thing where it's just like um it it's it's an awful dynamic but it's also like an evilly smart thing for the enemy to do because it really does highlight the hypocrisy of of these nations yeah but then some good actually came of it (laughs) because that like that is what drove i mean it was a catalyst in a way and and it, it kind of it gave them it gave these soldiers when they came back it gave them kind of pride and hope kind of thing. it helped them it helped them to come to a it, it helped them to, to to kind of i think it became it, it, an yeah. easier way to demonstrate how the uh colonialist engine which is sending them to these places doesn't actually care about them and then made yeah. it easier for them to communicate that message to other people and to fight that's, for civil rights. That's what like I that. was trying to go across. It became a <laughs> catalyst for that for that kind of thinking. Yeah. But um, um, uh, to to roll off the last things I was going to say, um, I think it's interesting how Watchmen the comic was like a deconstruction of superhero comics amongst many other things that we've spoken about two, uh, two Watchmen episodes ago. I think uh, Watchmen the film was like a in ways a, de- a deconstruction of superhero movies and many other things as we spoke about the Watchmen episode just gone and I think the show is interestingly not a deconstruction of like superhero TV or blah blah but it's more a deconstruction of our relationship with the original text mm. and other adaptations of it and I think yeah. that is a, a cool place because it's written and directed and made especially spearheaded by someone who was a massive fan of the book, but it's someone also who had the burden of, uh, like, all of that, like, knowing the history and the weight of all of that on them. So I think that it's super interesting to see within the show all these call-outs to stuff to do with handling that text, like the line you mentioned earlier, Rahul Whale, yeah. Maybe an hour or two ago uh, about uh, reruns <laughs> and how this is uh, stuff it, like with the squid, the squid gun from from the atmosphere is kind of a rerun, a rerun of mm. uh, how the end of the book happens. Um, and I, I do love how, in that way, it's quite meta and it's able to step outside of itself and sort of see how we, as a culture, uh, consume media but also our relationship to sort of the Bible of this type of world. And I thought it's quite, quite interesting because it's quite a, obviously this is a property with a creator who, a co-creator who is renowned for not wanting adaptations of his work. Um, and the person who made this knew they were going to get a hex cast on them, <laughs> but, but thought that the only way they could do it is the way they did it and make it about what the show is. And um, I'm happy that they took that, um, took that took the hex for us <laughs> um but then like uh just to the last thing i want to say and then i'm uh, i'm fully fully done is that what's nuts watching this show again like now or uh june when i watched it, uh june 2020 like 
following the Black Lives Matter protests and the, the most recent cases of unarmed uh, black men being uh, black people being murdered by by the cops and people who think they're cops in America. What's nuts is like how like the life imitates art stuff has happened. So like those Black Lives Matter murals, like the one that started in DC and lots of other cities have got them, that they've got almost the same typeface as Watchmen. And it's like Black Lives Matter in big yellow letters. And it's surreal watching that. And then connected to that is the fact that, and like the ones done in DC are done on the road, which leads from the park to um, the White House. And that's where Trump did his silly thing of like attacking protesters on TV to go to the church to get the photo up. So it's nuts how all of that ties together. And then after that, Trump has his has a rally during the coronavirus, uh, has a rally in Tulsa, and it was originally going to be on Juneteenth. <laughs> uh-huh. June, like, that is insane. Like, the, yeah. the, the white supremacist friendly president. Like, it, it's, it's just like, it's a slap in the face uh, to do that. And it's like, it feels so nuts how, you know, like the zeitgeist have just pulled all these things together. Um, mm. And it's, it's wild how, like, uh, life imitates art in that way. And, and it's based on art that was imitating life. And it just shows you how, like, history. Uh, I think I think the writer Cole Jefferson said this: like, hi- history is prescient. Like, the reason why Watchmen is called all this stuff is because Watchmen was commenting on stuff that's happened before. Mm-hmm. And I think that all of that is just um, partially a sad indictment of like how the world is, and how a lot of these freedoms and, and things that we we feel are like tangible and have have a, a degree of permanence don't. And that they can slip away if we take if we take our eyes off. But also how, like, um, like I was saying before, uh, in terms of getting more Watchmen, I think that the, the current era, uh, as, as well as any like meaningful justice that we get in terms of like uh, defunding police or abolition and, and everything, I think in terms of art, I think that. Um, there's a lot uh there's a lot lot to mine and and a lot more interesting ways to mine it and to talk about our current situation but yeah that's me yeah and uh, i think that wraps us up entirely i think that's nothing be else it. anyone nothing else i can always think of more things to say but i'll i'll drop it <laughs> oh here. i could think yeah. of stuff yeah i've got, love- i've got loads i could still say but yeah <laughs> I love how every I love how you guys wait for me to say, "Are we done?" Before you like, because sometimes that. it's the only good place where yeah we've been going through the conversation and I've had to skip over stuff and it's like, oh, this is a good time to bring this back. Hmm. Yeah, right. Okay, so that has been Ace Comicals does Watchmen. Like that is Ace Comicals watching the Watchmen Part Three. Um, so we have discussed Watchmen in its entirety. Um, you can go back and listen to the previous two episodes as well. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, so that's been Ace Comicals episode number 92. You can find us in all the usual places, www.acecomicals.com, which is kind of the hub for everything we do. And I don't think I need to go through all the different places you can listen to us because it's practically everywhere, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Um, you can find us on Twitter under Ace, uh, Ace Comicals, where you can tweet at us, at us, send us DMs, uh, get involved in the conversation, tell us what you thought about Watchmen if you sat and watched the TV show. 
Um, you can find me on Twitter under at Bato, uh, B-A-T-T-O-U, where, again, you can at DM whatever just get involved with the conversation about comics if you like some of the stuff we talk about if you have an opinion that you want to you want to air with us then just just go ahead and and get involved in the conversation ray where can we find you on twitter at monkey that's m-o-o-n-k-e-h and leon where can we find you you can find me at leon everett on twitter and who watches the watchman we do via cell phones yep (laughs) and uh ask you do you want to just uh, do you want to go ahead and plug? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I've I've since retired from Dynamite and the Brain, but there's lots of old episodes of of stuff you can listen to there. Um, and Twitch and Twitter, which is both and ask you. So go there, watch me play games. Yep, you can send us emails to. Um acecomicals at gmail.com uh you can donate the price of a coffee at uh our kofi site says comicals kofi which you can find a link to on our website um and uh you can also buy t-shirts from us we have ace comicals t-shirts uh which is uh, acecomicals.threadless.com um so yeah go ahead and check all that out um thanks for listening ace comicals over and out You've retired from Dynamite in the Brain. Yeah. That's a scoop. You hate anime, don't you?